Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain language and content that may not be suitable for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please be aware that this episode of Dumb Talk will contain spoilers for the entirety of Cash and Sins, and may contain spoilers from other series, so please be careful if you haven't finished them. Lastly, the views and opinions expressed by the participants of this episode do not reflect those of the Dumb Talk podcast as a whole. Enjoy the show. Wait a second. Who? Who am I? Why am I wandering through this this wasteland of ruin? And who is this dub talk that everyone keeps saying I killed? Please. Someone please tell me. Why am I even here? Kill Cashew. Devour Cashew. Kill Cashew. Devour Cashew. I know nothing. Not even myself. Yet my enemies call me Cashews. Hello and welcome to Dev Talk, where a group of robots come together to share in our fear of our immortality and talk about English stones for anime. Uh, tonight, uh, my name is Jet, and I'm joined by Roots of Justice. Oh, oh, excuse me. Um, I'm I'm just devouring these delicious cashews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have Lilac. Hello. And Megan. Hey guys, as I was coming into the office, there's a bunch of dudes on like these giant cards yelling, witness me, and like, look, I ain't into that exhibition shit, but if you are, you do you dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all two people who get that fucking joke. <laughs> we ride out shiny and chrome. Stop it. Thank you, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, so uh, we're all here tonight for an episode of Dub Talks Classics where we go over dubs or series that have left some kind of mark on the industry. Uh, so uh, what are we here to talk about, you might ask? Well, hold on, well, hold here... on. We're here for another reason aside from it being a Dub Talk Classics. Yeah. Uh, yes. Everybody sing it with me! Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to, to you. you! Come on, Kill everybody. the robots! Birthday <laughs> to you! Kill the robots! Happy birthday, <laughs> dear Jet! Happy birthday, dear Jet. Death Happy robots. birthday to you! It's Jet's birthday! Or it will be exactly two weeks from now. I but. know, but we're going to be at a convention, <laughs> so... <laughs> but that so means we can actually you, give you cake. I know we can actually give someone Yay. cake for their birthday. Okay, uh, so uh, back to being serious for a second. So, <laughs> what are we here to talk about? You might ask. Uh, we're here to discuss one of the first shows to appear on the Toonami Block back when it was revived in 2012. No, it's not Dead Man Wonderland. Uh, we're here to talk about the much beloved and not at all divisive classic. Based off of the 80s tokusatsu anime Neo-Human Cashier, good old Cashier and Sins. What's up? Okay, um, so if you aren't familiar with Cashier and Sins and you want to know what it's all about, uh, I'm actually going to read the synopsis off the back of Funimation's Blu-ray release, and I want you guys to tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 how desperate they were to market this. I wonder if it's the same summary that's on the back of my save edition. <clears throat> Cashier, a cybernetic assassin with no memory of his past. 
Awakens in a corrosive wasteland where nothing survives for long. A plague known as the ruin sweeps this once vibrant world, reducing everything in its path to rubble and scattering any chance for salvation. Robots and humans alike are what little remains of them. Seek vengeance against Kashard for the life he took and the role he played in their ruin. A machine built to kill, Kashard murdered the last hope for this world. But now lost in a future he does not recognize, he will fight to save the dying. So basically the plot of the show can be summed up as the Cards Against Humanity card teaching a robot how to love. <laughs> You're not wrong! <laughs> that summary is just angsty as shit. It's not even funny. We turn on Skynet uh. once. Once! <laughs> and look at well, what happened. Look at all this shit. Whoops. <laughs> I don't know how to come back from that. <laughs> yeah, uh, so before we get too deep into things, I know Steph and Megan are here because I obviously dragged them into this. No, te- technically, technically, since this is a birthday episode, I dragged them into this. I dragged myself, thank you. Okay, that's true. Uh, but anyway, I know you've seen the show before, Rude, so uh, what's your history with this? Well, um, I had actually, back in... Back in, like, 2008, as the show was airing, um, my internet connection was too terrible to actually torrent things. So I heard about this show entirely from secondhand, and I remember watching the, um, the YouTube stream of Funimation's Otakon panel back in, I, I want to say it was still 08, or 09, back when they dropped this and Eden of the East, and, like, holy crap, it was one of their bigger oh, years there, and... I ended up picking it up at, I want to say it was at Anime Boston, and it just kind of sat on my shelf for a while until a friend of mine noticed it and was kind of interested, so we watched through it, and it it was really good. And then 2012 rolls around, it shows up on Toonami, and I'm like, holy crap, people are actually going to, like, watch this in mass now. So... That's my history. Cool. Uh, as for me, I also have a bit of a long history with this one. Uh, like you, I actually discovered this back when it was so airing way back in the yesterday year of 2008 while I was still in high school. I was browsing through Crunchyroll back when that company was still riding the high seas, and uh, I noticed a cool-looking character who kind of looked like Mega Man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you could pass for it as a different version, alternate version. He looks like he rolled out of Gotcham and Crowd sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, a uh, funny thing, like, there actually is an abridged series for this, like, only two episodes, but they called it Mecha Man Sins. <laughs> <laughs> That's great! <laughs> yeah, so, uh, anyway, that kind of caught my attention, and while I didn't, like, totally get the first episode, I was uh, kind of interested in seeing more of it, and I ended up keeping up with the show through to the end. Uh, I enjoyed it and recommended it to a friend, but I didn't think about it again for a while till around, like, 2009 or 2010 when Funimation announced they had home video rights for this alongside Eden of the East. And uh, since I figured it was probably going to get a dub, I was kind of curious what it would sound like, so I ended up going back to the series uh, to kind of refresh myself. And then I ended up really loving it the second time around. And uh, dub eventually came out, and I was pretty happy with that. And then uh, a couple of years after that, it came on to Tsunami, and I was recommending it to new people. Uh, might not have been the best idea, but uh, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> I was say, if, you're, if you're new to anime, don't start with Cashrinsons. <laughs> yeah, please don't start with Cashrinsons. <laughs> that is that is like the furthest 
news from beginners. No, like, I, I mean, for me, this is the first time I've ever seen it, actually. I've actually owned the save edition for this for quite a while now, and I haven't had the opportunity to watch it. I didn't watch it on Toonami. I didn't know nothing. I only saw trailers. But I owned it forever, and then I volunteered to be on Jet's birthday episode, and then he decided to do this. I'm like, oh, cool. Perfect opportunity to finally watch the damn thing. <laughs> so thank you, Jet. <laughs> of course. Thank you. Uh, so, as always, uh, we're going to start this off by going into uh, some of our ADR staff. So, we're going to talk about the people behind the booth uh, with our ADR voice director and the adaptive scriptwriter. Handling the voice direction for this dub, we have one Jason Grundy. And for the adaptive script, we have Jason Rye. Uh, Jason Grundy has directed dubs for such series as Rosario plus Vampire, Sekirei, a few episodes of One Piece, and uh, everyone's favorite classic uh, that's been on the Funimation Classics line many times, Master of Martial Arts. Oh, God. I feel so bad. (laughs) (laughs) How that show is considered classic, I I don't want to... I thought you were going to bring up Funimation's other uh, classic show, which was... uh, the Chuck E. Cheese thing that Chris Sabbath said. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yes. Release it on uh, Blu-ray, you cowards. <laughs> Do it, you won't. Release that Chucky. E. Let the Chuck E. Cheese Blu-ray say the light of day, you fucks. Let the Chuck E. Cheese flow. Let the ch- let Chucky's cheese flow. Oh god. <laughs> that made that ten times worse. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yeah. Now I'm just now I'm just now I'm just I I have to dig the hole deeper because now I'm now I'm imagining a cybernetic giant mouse jacking it off. Okay. I'm gonna um, stop for uh, no reason. I'm texting this to Andrew. He's right gonna now. let out his mozzarella. Okay, no context. No context. <laughs> just texting this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, as for Andrew Rye, he's been the adaptive scriptwriter on such shows as Eden of the East. Case Ooh. closed. Peach Girl and Rumbling Hearts. Oh wow! Okay. <coughs> yeah. Uh, oh wow. Yeah. So I'll go first. Oh uh, yeah, sure. By all means, you can go ahead. Yeah. Some I don't know. Like the guy who engineered the show. I don't know. He's kind of some like hack named Kyle Phillip. <laughs> yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, quite a few years ago when Kyle Phillips was still an ADR engineer. <laughs> the Phillips was an ADR engineer. <laughs> I wonder what ever happened to that guy. Huh. I don't know. I wonder what this man's career trajectory will be at Funimation Entertainment. I say, okay, I say his career is flaming right now, but that's not appropriate. So. That was good. I like that. <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't know, I think he did a little dance with the devil, now his career's got a fire force behind it. But up up but up up. There it is! There we go. We love you, Kyle. Don't ever tell I was kidding, you're not a hack. <laughs> so But um Go ahead, honey. Oh, I no. I have to do it, but who the fuck is Kyle? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I really I went I feel like Hardy needs to make me a shirt that just says who the fuck is Kyle. And just make and make <laughs> Kyle a shirt. No, make me a shirt that says who the fuck is Kyle and just have Kyle Phillips with the shirt that says I'm Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll good. see if he'll do it for me. Who is Ki- who the F is Kyle? I'm Kyle. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, you need to DM him. Right make, make Kyle a shirt that says I'm Kyle. Um so no, uh it has been a while since I've watched a dub this old from Funimation. Like I think I do have some stuff on my shelf that pre I think predates this or at least goes back that far. Um I'd say this was dubbed in what, twenty twelve? 
Uh, around 2010. Okay, about to say 2010. Okay, so this goes back as far as as dubs like Bacchano, Bamboo Blade, Birdie the Mighty. Like that era. Mushishi. Right. So it's it's been a while since I've watched a dub that's a little like it's it's in within this decade, but it's kind of older and not what I'm used to. I really enjoyed it. I thought a lot of the one-off. This is a show that I'll be real. I like this show better when it didn't have a plot. Um, I like this show when it was sad robot apocalypse mushishi. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not ashamed to say that like the first season of mushishi is like up there for me as one of my favorite anime and has some of my favorite one-off anime episodes. And there are a lot of like yep. one-off episodes in the show that fucked me up. Um, and the performances behind a lot of them are super engaging and super fun. Um, with how old this, like, how much older this dub is, uh, there's a lot of people who, maybe this was some of their first work, so you could still hear them kind of getting used to it, but I think the roughness in the performances really work with the way that the emotionality in the show is. I think that the writing never seems, like, too out of place, and I've never gotten to watch the Japanese of this, and frankly, after watching this show once, I don't think I'd go back and watch the Japanese not because I think the show is bad, but it's just this is not a show that I like. It's it's once a year. It's time to. It's I'm not I'm not our friend Lauren who just boots up the devil as a part timer every three months. Sorry, honey. Um, sorry, Lauren. I love you. Um, uh, I think engaging dub. I think the writing's really done. I think the casting's really well done. Um, when Jet said, "I hope you know," I hope you don't know who plays Catherine to me. Now I understand what that joke is. <laughs> now I understand you, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a great time watching it. Uh, I will say though, I think the Eng- as this is as weird as it says. This is a show that I could easily fall asleep to, and that's not an insult. It's just very relaxing for a very depressing show. <laughs> so yeah. So I think it was. I think the dub is really solid. Uh, so yeah. Though I do not know how the fuck this got onto Nami. This show has the mushishi effect because I feel felt the exact same way. <laughs> I seriously do not know how- I do not know how this got on Toonami, though. I do not know how this got on Toonami ever, though. Probably because- Uh, 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 they- Uh, like, I guess they were a little more desperate content then, and this was- And this wasn't, like, super old by that point, so I guess it was, like, safe enough. Yeah, nothing- yeah, nothing in this show is, like- A lot of it was reruns. This and- I mean, this and Dead Man were the only actual yeah, news like, shows. Everything else in the blog at the time was reruns. Like, I, I understand that because, like, I, I'm surprised I'm questioning that this is a show that ran because Cowboy Bebop run, ran and some of Cowboy Bebop is, like, ultimately very depressing. But, like, even, there's, like, there's, like, I think it's, like, episode 18 or 19 just was very trippy. And I was like, what the fuck am I watching? I, I, I mean, if you're confused, let us just remember Evangelion aired on American TV at one yeah, point, true. so. This is true. It was worthy of American right. TV's grace. American TV is weird. It wasn't worthy of its grace in uh, American television. Uh, uh, <laughs> Damn it. Okay, I I'm brought sorry. that on myself. Sorry. I'm sorry. I had to take the shot. It's, I'm done. You it's can okay. go. Uh, so, uh, does anyone else have thoughts? I mean, in terms of the script writing, it... I, I don't know how to word this, but um, it kind of had that bleach kind of stilted dialogue, but unlike 
unlike with Bleach, it kind of worked here because um, Catcher Sins, if you watch it from the lens of a tokusatsu series, like the the sort of broken up, stilted dialogue actually kind of fits really hmm. well. Okay. Like if if you've ever like checked out a couple episodes of live action Garo, yep, for I example. Know you're going yeah, it, like everything is everything is like broken up, dramatic, played to eleven, and like it's it's the same here. It, it done really well, and um, going back around to uh, Kyle Phillips and the engineering, like I really like that they gave each of the non-humanoid robots a distinct kind of jangliness in, in the back of the voice. Like the... It was like metal clanging, but it didn't... It didn't sound the same for every one of them. Like, every... Except for, like, the mooks, basically. <clears throat> all, the, all the robots that actually had names attached to them sort of had their own little effect added to them to give them a distinctness. And I really like that. Yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. I especially like, I especially like that, uh, that's that real, that's that bait one in episode two that Breaking Boss is talking to, the one that, like, jumped in the fire for ten seconds. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, I just really like the way that oh, guy yeah. sounded. Yeah, that was really cool. And, um, as far as direction, um, I... Actually, I really do like Jason Grundy's works. Um, from what I understand, he went over to Sentai for a little bit after after Cashern and just kind of dropped off the map, and that's that's a shame. Yeah, because uh, uh, over on the Sentai and, uh, side, he did. Um, I think I saw he did Medeca Box. Yep, Medeca Box. Um, uh, what else did he freaking do? He did the audio engineering for a few episodes of Dust Make Amnesia. Yeah, he did a few things over at Sentai for a bit. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he probably more than likely had very good reason to step away, but it is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Eh. And in terms of casting for the hundreds of robots in this show which we're probably only going to get to a fraction. It was it was really solid, so... Thumbs up all around. Cool. Uh, did you have any thoughts, Steph? Yeah, I mean, it's... To, to Ruth's point in terms of the hundreds of robots, I'm pretty sure I heard, though, to be fair, three different Chris Rager robots in the whole show. Okay. There was, there was yeah, a yeah. lot of double casting, but to the show's credit... Anime English dubbing probably still was a growing industry during that period of time anyway. Again, I disagree with you there. Funimation was fairly established at that point. I think it, I think that was probably just because this wasn't a very high-priority project for them. That also is so. fair. Like, um... Also, given the nature of robots and mass production, I can, I can give double casting a... 
I can give it a pass. Not really when one of the episodic characters that we're going to talk about in the next section turns out to be one of the side robots later on. That kind of can get jarring. I can't really forgive it that much. <laughs> um, I mean, it was um, the episode three character. I can't fucking pronounce his name. And he's the human character, too. <laughs> oh, yeah! I, I heard him, too, as another robot, and I was like, wait a minute. Yep. Like, something like that. I understand maybe this one wasn't a high-profile, high important project for Funimation, but still, it's like, really? Can't do a little bit to distinguish a little bit more? Um, but, I mean, outside of that, because I've only watched this show once <laughs> for this episode... I haven't had the opportunity to watch it a second time to get more in-depth to it. But a lot of the philosophical nature of this show, <clears throat> as depressing as it is, but a lot of the philosophical nature of the show about life and death and what it really means to be alive and all this fun stuff, I think it's portrayed very, very well in the script uh, during the main plot lines of the show. And even with the one episodics where Cashman runs into these individuals and how they're living their lives and spending their lives before they die. It's very interesting and compelling to watch these. And I'm and the casting of the show is very solid. There's there's at least a couple people I know nothing about and probably for good reason. And then we're not going to be able to cover again obviously everything, but it's a wide range that we definitely would have seen back in the day, like, almost a decade ago when this show was recorded. Like, there's there's a Chris Patton in there, there's a Jeremy Lee in there, there's people we won't talk about in there, um, but the casting's very, very interesting in terms of the time period that this show came out, but I think the strongest is definitely the major characters. I would say... Definitely Cash... The, the biggest four, definitely, for sure. Cash and Louise, Ringo, and Hoji. I love them. They're a fun group to listen to and have banter back and forth. Um, but yeah, definitely it's solid on the directing front, solid on the writing front. It's just the really... While I understand this might not be a big profile project for them, um, having the distinguishing between an episodic character and then having him take a background role later on it kind of makes things a little weird and jarring, especially if you're very familiar with voice actors and their distinctive voices like we are. Um, that's the one criticism I think I would have of that show. That's still, like, my biggest criticism with the Boongo Stray Dog stub is, like, sometimes I watch it and I'm like, oh, you're and also a big character in this, so. Yep. It's the same idea. One other, to be fair, I would probably I would probably give Kesharn mm -hmm. Sins in particular with the, with the character you're talking about. His particular actor wasn't quite as well known in the 2009-2010-ish time frame than he is now, so... That that person has a very distinct voice. Uh, I was like, uh, yeah, I'll actually have some interesting words about that when we cover them, but uh, okay. as for me, real quick. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I'm not, like, super familiar with Jason Grundy's directorial works, since it seems to have mostly been centered around, like, early Sentai dubs and fan service shows, and while I've definitely seen at least an episode or two of Seki Ray and Resire Vampire... I'm sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I'm so sorry for you. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I used to like Seki Ray and the Rosario Vampire manga was really good. Not the anime. 
<laughs> uh, it's been such a long time, I couldn't really tell you what those dubs were like, though. Uh, but as far as this series goes, I definitely like what he brought to the table here. Uh, the casting here is definitely pretty diverse, makes a good use of experienced veterans, uh, some folks who were fairly new at the time, and a uh, few out-of-towners from the Houston area. And uh, a lot of the performances here are really solid, and while this dub could have, you know, very easily sounded awkward or over the top, uh, given the amount of melodrama and upsetting and all the heavy prose of the script, uh, it all comes together really well. It doesn't matter everyone here is as consistent and well-casted, maybe bearing one or two small exceptions. Uh, Andrew Rise adapted script was also really good, and while he had, like, the very difficult task of making all the shows uh, prose and metaphors sound coherent in English, I thought he pulled it off really well. And the script does a great job of capturing all the show's themes without ever sounding too stiff. Or, you know, straying from what the original script was going for. And I gotta say that for how that for how low-key for a project this probably was for Funimation at the time, I'm actually really impressed with how well this holds up. I mean, it's not quite my favorite Funimation dub, but it's been pretty high up there for me for a while, and I'm definitely glad it held up really well for this rewatch. And uh, with that, I guess it's time to actually start talking about some characters. Yes, uh, yeah, as a, uh, so for our first group, we have a few of our one-off no. characters who all show up for a single episode each. Uh, those characters are Akos, uh, Sofita, and Lizbell. Uh, Akos is a wanderer who travels with Kachin for a bit and is one of the last remaining humans on Earth. Uh, Sofita is a female warrior robot known as the Angel of Ruin. And uh, Lizbell is a female robot worker who wants to build a giant tower with a large bell. Uh, so, playing Akos, we have Ian Sinclair. For Sofita, we have Carrie Savage. And for Lizbell, we have Stephanie Young. Uh, Ian Sinclair, you'll have heard in such roles as Danny in Space Dandy, Favreau Leone from Brains of Bahamut, and Yang Wedley from Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And My Ohio husband! Uh, Stephanie. <laughs> my, well, one of my many uh, fictional Stephanie... husbands, my potential real one, is on the call. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta make the decision known here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephanie Young, you've heard as KK in Blood Blockade Battlefront, Claire from Claymore, and Nico Robert from One Piece. Uh, as for Carrie Savage, I don't think she's a name we've really got to talk about on the podcast before since he doesn't do a lot of newer stuff these days. No, so I'm very happy we get to talk about her today. Yeah, uh, but she's been around the block for a while and she's played such characters as Salty from Salty Ray, Mika Hariba from Durara, and Lisa Strauss from Fairytale. So, I'm uh, gonna pick a random name to start us off. Roots. All right, one sec. Ha! 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 Yeah. You forgot the most <laughs> important Carrie Savage role, least in me. Uh, which one would that be? She's Maromi from Paranoia Agent. Oh, uh, You forgot oh, the yeah, most that... important Carrie Savage role to me. And what would that would be? And that's the mo- The Mokinas. Uh, of course. Look, I've actually, like- this can this can be cut out. I actually got to like one of the first Megacons I ever went to. Like she was a guest there, and I got to like sit with her on the bus back to the hotel. And she's like one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Aww. Like I talked to her for like a half hour. Uh, she's like the night like one of the nicest people ever. Cool, nice. All right, so um, I guess I'll do this in episode order. So I gotta say, I really, I actually really do enjoy the kind of casual Ian Sinclair performances where he's just playing a guy sort of the 
sort of the Yanwen Lee's of uh, Jet's little montage of characters he's played. Like, except Akos is not a young Win Lee kind of guy. True. He's a snarky, but he's he's just out there living his life, you know. But I I just like that he's like down to earth, actually kind of having pleasant conversation with Cashern, and just you know, he's so laid back. That philosophy is great, by the way. Like he's just like, oh yeah, I eat, I shit, I eventually die. That's a thing. Yeah, uh, it's a fun thing that reminds me of like the initial tsunami broadcast because it was back when they could, it was back when they couldn't say <laughs> it was back when they couldn't say shit without bleeding, bleeping it out. So like so during that line was actually bleeped out a little bit. It was hilarious. I eat. I fuck. I think they do actually have to no, still don't. like if tsunami were to rebroadcast Catherine the word sins, shit at all. I I think they would still have to bleep out the word shit because it actually <laughs> refers to. Like there, because um, well, there are there are weird nuances to to swears and broadcast shit. rules. Yeah, so, because like, fuck you, Comcast. Look, I have YouTube TV and I make it work. Okay, it's not my fault. You, I don't get it anymore. Uh, Blank Comcast. Comcast. Fuck Comcast. <coughs> yeah. I also have kind of crappy internet, so there we go. But um, Carrie Savage as uh, Sofita, I like. I actually do kind of really like how childish yes. she plays the character. Like, it's probably even a thing in the Japanese where she refers to herself completely in the third person. And, like, I wasn't that big of a fan of the character because I'm not, I'm not big on the all I do is, all I do is fight and I want to be the strongest kind of characters. Which is going to be a really big thing later on in the episode, but. Yeah, but Sofita's character's not really one of those she uses fighting to get across her feelings true but it's a little bit different uh, but really on on my first watch through of the show i i thought she played too much as a um as a kind of goku type character where they're just they're just fighting because they like fighting like, not necessarily to protect anyone, or... Like, this was around the time I was really starting to understand the Japanese side of Dragon Ball Z, and, like, Goku's not this paragon of justice that the dub played him out oh, to me. Oh, well, yeah, that was definitely a fun revelation. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, um... But, yeah, I, I generally liked her performance... She she gave Sophita sort of a a weird bubbliness <laughs> that I really wasn't expecting. <laughs> and Stephanie Young as Lizbell, holy crap. I actually think episode seven may be one of my favorite of the episodics. Like, just because like Stephanie Young gets across that sort of lusty energy that Lizbell shows for Cashern, which as it turns out, she wants his body. 
to make her better. Oh my! To be fair, everybody wants a spot. Well, okay, I mean, look, okay, I mean, okay, I mean, look, that's a very consistent thing with the show. <laughs> True. <laughs> I think everybody in Casher and Sin wants Casher and Spy. God damn it. Some for different reasons Some than others. Some people just want to like, eat him out. Okay, let's be fair. And you... Roots is broken. Okay, I mean, let's be fair for Good a second. Good job, Megan, you broke okay, your I mean, boyfriend. Let's be fair for a second. Have you seen Casher? <laughs> Very Bichon. <laughs> oh. oh. You did it, huh? You did it. Oh. That's my job. <laughs> Don't worry, I cuddle. I make. I get. I make it out to him in cuddles. But in all seriousness, like she, she gives Lizbell sort of a determination, and then like really passionate toward the end of the second act, and then the big reveal that oh yeah, she's just trying to grind Casher and up to melt his components down and make her make her bell to make the most beautiful sound. And dear God, when she's when she's talking to Ringo about the bell, when it uh, where she's just doing the ding dong ding dong God, that was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really like this batch of characters. Lizbell may be one of my favorites of the um, of the individuals, other than one that we'll be talking about in the next segment. Um, hmm. But yeah, great all around. I may as well go in episode order two just to make my life easier because that's also how I write my notes. Um, Ian, Ian Sinclair is—he's just a guy. That's really the point of his character. He's just a guy, and he's the first sign of humanity, really. That. Um, both us as the viewer and Kashern really get to see and acknowledge as the first sign of humanity and a person on this world. And he has, what did I write? And has, he has really good insight as to the world around him. Again, the entire show has these philosophical tones and contexts with like life and death and um, what it means to be alive. And one of the big points for Ian and, um, Echo, uh, I can't pronounce his name. Thank you, Akos. Is at the end of the episode when he does die, he, God, what was it? He wanted, I think he wanted to die alone. Was that it? He didn't want to die alone. He was afraid. Yep, that's what it does. I know he but, um, the thing is he didn't want to die alone. The he last was... few days that he spent um, with Kashern and just talking to him and traveling with him kind of just relieved that for him a bit. And it was actually really, really nice and sweet to see. Ian Sinclair is the person in the last section that I referenced as having the distinctive voice that ended up as a background robot character a few episodes later. So... Going from that to background, that's... Again, I understand. I understand things happen. This might not be huge on the right... on Of a show that... On people's radars at the time. But still, that's kind of, to me, just like... Could have done something else. Or at least waited a while longer. Half a show later. I think he popped up again as another robot, like, towards the end or something, too, actually. Possibly. But, like, at that point, that's different. 
Like, with the Akos episode still being fresh in my mind and then seeing him pop up as a robot, like, two episodes later, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> I think that's where I'm like, hold on. Wait. But otherwise than that, um, he's definitely a very solid performance there. Sofita. I actually really like Sofita's character a lot. She has such a passion and a fire about her. Because, um, yes, all her big thing is that she wants to fight. She loves fighting. But, like I was saying before, to counteract with Roots, she does it because that's her only way to get her feelings across. Um, and she makes that very clear when she tries to fight Kasher <laughs> towards the end of the episode. Because she doesn't know how to handle her feelings or what to even say. She can't even find the words. So she uses her her fighting in order to do so, um, despite Kashern's desire not to fight her. Um, he just, but he just lets her do it anyway. She kind of just goes with it. And it's actually really sweet. And Carrie Savage, I think, gives such a graceful and almost beautiful tone to her. Um, it does have childlike qualities, like Ruse was saying, but I think there's more of a beauty and a grace to the tone and the character that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and her passion is just really shines through in a single episode. And that's why I think, out of the one-off characters, I think Sofita's one of my favorites. Um, as for Stephanie Young, we're used to Stephanie Young performances and roles being pretty boisterous and pretty, depending on the character, almost like a seductive tone to it. That's This is not one of those times. Stephanie Young has a much more soft and almost a breathy quality to her performance as Lizbell. And I think it's actually fits rather well, given the character that this character Lizbell is. It's quite different than what Stephanie is mostly known for. And <laughs> Lizbell is very creepy. <laughs> She's... It's creepy, yes, but like Ruth was saying, it was also in a very sad kind of way. Where she wants to have the bell ring because she wants to give some kind of beauty in a desolate world like this while everything is in ruin. And the more Cashin learns about her, the more he feels for it. But at the same time, she's creepy as fuck. <laughs> Trying to take all these robots, including Cashin, and be like, you're going to be part of my bell! Wouldn't that be great? We can make a nice, beautiful sound. <laughs> It's like, Stephanie, no. <laughs> no, Stephanie, don't kill the robot. You don't do that. But, um, yeah, it's definitely, a, in terms of what we're used to with Stephanie Young and her range and her performances, Lizbell is definitely a different character with a quiet and more breathy quality to her vocals. And I think for this kind of character, it works rather well. It's kind of a general thing with a lot of these characters because this is a more low-key kind of show. It's not out there and boisterous and ha and all this fun stuff. It's a much more quiet and subtle kind of context that you have to present here. Um, and Stephanie Young is definitely a huge factor into this as well with her episode. But yeah, all three of these are very solid. All right, so we'll start with uh, Ian Sinclair's Akos. Um, I genuinely was super surprised that this was Ian Sinclair's character. Mostly because... I'm sorry. I say as the one who doesn't want to fall asleep and to you, Steph, and here I am yawning. Um, I liked his his weird, like, 
cause like I don't want to say he was clownish, but like he he kind of like played the sad clown, I guess, in that episode, where he's just like I eat, I shit, I eat. Like he doesn't know how to eat lizards until Kashrin like hunts them down. But he also gives Kashrin that push to befriend the number one best doggo ever. Friender, friender, best dog. <laughs> 10 out of 10 with Doggo again. Best boy. Again. I, I love Friender. Best boyfriender. Um, best boyfriender who does not talk on, like the dog, like Ragna in that time I got reincarnated yep. as a slime. But like, the, that genuine like, I miss a dude being a dude out here. I'm just a guy playing another guy playing another guy. Like, but he doesn't do the Robert Downey Jr. Tropic Thunder thing. Uh... I genuinely enjoyed the the chillness, the approachability, and the sadness that like undercut his voice. Um, I know that Ian Sinclair back in that time was still a, an up and comer. He wasn't like the powerhouse we know like these days. And I genuinely really enjoyed it. I wouldn't have said this was more. I would say this is more in the Young Wenli wheelhouse, but not the same tone. Young had a lot more confidence in his voice compared to Akos. Um, moving on to Carrie Savage. I thought she was delightfully delightful and so much fun to listen to. And I think Roots really nailed it when she said she had the sense of like childlike wonder to her. But her childlike wonder is very juxtaposed to another character's uh, kind of childlike wonder that you see. And like the the more like it's not that she fights because she thinks You're fighting is strong and stuff because that's like she's like Goku and. Goku can't look. Goku can't get it up for his wife, but he can get it up for a fight. Uh, yeah, that actually like, seems very apt. Whenever he's like, away, she has to do something. Chi Chi's probably got the biggest, baddest dildo for home, for home use. <laughs> um, I mean, when she's there, she has to do something. Goku doesn't get it up unless he hears a fight bell. Um, she she probably had to ring one to even get... She, let's be real. She probably had to ring one so that Goten would even come into existence. Um, but I'm gonna stop there. She has this childlike wonder and like... it. It's really weird because I think we're gonna talk about... I'll talk about it more with the character in the next segment. But like it feels like she can't... She couldn't express herself without it. And that, like, childish wonder was, like, I don't know. It felt like it felt like a five-year-old who smacks their sibling around because they don't know any better. And even though that's going to get them in trouble, they still mm. keep doing it. And I really think that she gets that across well in her voice without making her sound like a little baby child. She sounds like a young woman with the brain of one. And then Stephanie Young's episode is probably, like, number two on the list of things that just absolutely fucked me up in the show. <laughs> Um, just the whole, like, she, she gives, like, a chilling performance, especially the part where, um, OG and Ringo find her up on the tower, and she just, she pulls like she's ringing the bell, but the bell isn't actually there because it's fallen off the tower, and she just starts going, ding dong. It's like, oh, oh, this is very depressing, and I do not like this, this makes me uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable performance. And, like, it's good that it's uncomfortable because right. I think the episode itself was made to be uncomfortable to get you to think about it. And she, like, and the levels of, like, kind of sexual undertones it has, like, 
I felt like this episode was like the single most sexual, like second most single sexual episode of Casher and Sins behind like another episode, which we'll get to when we talk about that character. But overall, I I really like the three performances, and I think that the, these three episodes, as well as one of the ones we're gonna talk about in the next episode, the next set of characters, is like what I thought the best about Casher and Sins. So yeah, good on good on them for being a really strong ensemble. Cool. Um, so I'll also go in uh, episode order, starting with uh, Akos. Uh, so Ian Sinclair as Akos is uh, particularly interesting for me because uh, this stuff was coming out during the point where I was just kind of starting to buy anime regularly and uh, maybe pay a little bit better attention to voice actors. Uh, so this was actually the very first Ian, Ian Sinclair role I ever heard. Uh, I mean, now that I'm a little more familiar with him, I actually have to say that honestly, if I were to go into this show fresh, I might not have been able to tell it was him. Uh, Kasherin is uh, definitely a very bleak show, so you know, what I like about his performance is just kind of how much life he brings to Akos. I really adore just the sense of playfulness he gets to him during all his interactions with Kasherin, and you know, just how much he makes the guy sound like a regular dude he'd want to hang out with. Uh, but you know, at the same time, Akos is like clearly a man who's gotten into his share of trouble in the past. And I appreciate how uh, Ian's performance can kind of shift to a more serious tone during his, like, few moments of introspection. And, uh, while, you know, still keeping very consistent with Akos's uh, very lively attitude. Uh, but uh, definitely my favorite moments for him were definitely the scene where he's kind of, you know, talking to Cash and about how trying to run away from his crimes hasn't really done anything for him. And, you know, and also uh, his death scene where he kind of admits in the end that even with all the crimes he committed, he was kind of scared to die alone. And uh, it definitely made me feel for this guy, even though he was a one-off character, and I really just liked how much nuance Ian brought to this role. And I'm really glad this was my first impression of him as an actor, because uh, even now I thought this was a really impressive performance, and he's definitely been impressing me ever since then. And uh, just also as, like, a random aside, I'm still kind of, uh, I'm still kind of help, can't help but be amused at the irony that uh, Akos' last words are that, yeah. oh, Kasher, you know, Grim Reaper. Oh, just you now say that. Oh, man. <laughs> uh. <laughs> just because you're right. Come on. Doesn't mean you're hurt. <laughs> Whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay, uh, so getting into uh, Carrie Savage and Safina. Uh, Carrie Savage is an actress uh, we haven't got to talk about a lot in the podcast, since, again, her early night anime these days is basically just Lisa up from Fairy Tale. And uh, it's kind of a shame because for quite a while, she was actually one of my favorite actresses for Funimation. And she was, the, and, uh, she was definitely one of a handful of names I recognized at that time. And uh, I've always enjoyed how well Carrie could kind of portray childishness in her character, since uh, my first exposure to her was probably Salty and Salty Ray, who was kind of an adorable little cinnamon role. And, uh, well, Sophie is definitely not that. Uh, I really like how well her whole childlike attitude comes across when it comes to violence and, you know, the whole speaking in the third person thing, which kind of helped to make the character sound very distinct. Uh, but, well, at the same time, while she does sound very childish, I like that there's just something to her general show that sounds a little unsettling and creepy, which kind of helps to, you know, understand why all these robots are so terrified of her. 
And, and you know, of course, given her love for fighting, it's not too surprising that Sofita eventually gets the hots for Kasher. And, and I like how Sofita kind of, how Carrie handles all their interactions, since it always feels like she can't quite wrap her mind around why he's so evasive towards fighting. Uh, but of course, her best moment is definitely the bit where she kind of witnesses Kasher's immortality firsthand and, you know, decides to try her hand at killing him only to realize in the end she doesn't want to because she kind of feels sorry for him and just kind of loses her taste for fighting him altogether. Uh, it's a really big character shift for just one scene and I really liked how Carrie managed to handle that transition. And uh, just like when Ian Sinclair's actors, I was really impressed with just how much life she brought to a one-off character. And uh, thanks to her performance, I felt like I understood Sophia pretty well by the end of it. And uh, just as like another random aside, I gotta say that out of all these shows, one-off characters, she was probably the one I really wanted to come back at some point because I'm, I'm not gonna lie, Sophia was actually kind of hot. Uh, anyway, last week getting into uh, Lizbell. So like with Ian Sinclair, this role was kind of the first time I'd ever really heard Stephanie Young in anything. And uh, she definitely gave me a very solid impression. Uh, when we first meet Lizbell, she kind of comes off as a bit of a mystery, and it's sort of reflected in Stephanie's performance. Uh, but then, you know, we find out she's a little cray-cray, and her performance kind of becomes a little more unhinged. As uh, Lizbell reveals, she's pretty determined to uh, use Kasher's body for herself. Uh, and because of that, really, Kasher. women in the show don't want Kasher's body. Fuck Kasher. Uh, <laughs> 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 Fuck Mary uh, Kill. Sure. Kind of backfires pretty quickly, and ends up making her even more determined to complete her work. And then you know things kind of fall apart for her when she learns no one really wants to hear her bell. And uh, Stephanie did a really good job of selling both the emptiness Lizbell felt when her life's work just kind of literally fell apart, and you know that whole little bit of newfound hope and Casher kind of called her work beautiful. And uh. And okay, I'll be honest in a bit that this I just like this particular episode a whole lot. I just really like how well it kind of, you know, presents the whole idea of how the consuming desire to create something can kind of, uh, you know, help you find beauty even in an otherwise, you know, kind of meaningless existence. And I thought, I thought that was really nice. And uh, again, Stephanie did a really great job here. I liked all three of these a lot. And uh, with that, I guess we're going to move on to our next bit of one-shot characters. And so for our yeah, so for our next match, yeah, so for our next match we have Janice, yeah. Nico, Bolton, and Margo. Uh, Janice is a famous singer who brings hope to robots through her music and travels with Kasher for a little bit. Uh, Nico was one of Luna's former caretakers, but had her surgery <laughs> damaged after the ruin. Uh, Bolton uh, was one of Dio's robot soldiers who tries and fails to attack Kasher and. Ends up being looked up, looked after by Nico after he gets injured. And lastly, Margo is a robot painter who kind of wants to leave his mark on the world before he dies. Uh, so playing Janice, we have Caitlin Glass. For Nico, we have Alexis Tipton. For Bolton, we have Chris Sabat. And for Margo, we have Greg Ayers. Uh, Caitlin Glass has played such characters as Winry Rockbell from Fullmetal Alchemist, Harui Fujioka from Oran High School Host Club, and Satellizer L. Bridget from Freezing. Uh, Alexis Sipton has played such characters as Pearl Faye from Ace Attorney, Faye Hatsume from My Hero Academia, and Moko Akasia from Rosario Plus Vampire. Uh, Chris Sabin has played such characters as Garterbelt from Pantheon Stalking with Garterbelt, Tatsuma Uchiyama from Golden Cowboy, and Golden Rays from Drifters. 
uh, alongside, you know, pretty much half the male cast of Dragon Ball Z. And uh, lastly, Greg Ayers explains such characters as Onigiri from Air Gear, Negi Springfield from the Negima franchise, and because topical, Ganta Igarazi from Dead Man Wonderland. So I find it useful us off this time. Let's see, where are my notes starting with episode order? Caitlin! Uh, Caitlin is Janice. I originally thought that this character was gonna be a mute character at first in the episode, because she didn't say a damn thing. And then she only really started talking when she's talking to Kasher, and I was like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> which made me very confused as why we were gonna talk about her, at least at first, but then I understood. Um, but Caitlin is another performance where it has such a grace and a poise about her. Um, almost, almost regal to a sense, not to the extent of a diva. And Megan will <coughs> appreciate that since we talked about a diva yesterday, actually. Um, but, but it, what's really interesting is this is one of the few instances, at least back then, mm-hmm. where there was a dubbed song. Caitlyn does actually get to sing in the show. And that song actually pops up in English quite a few times after that. Which actually, which is a nice touch, by the way. Uh, yeah, really? uh, also like a very interesting fact, the song was actually also in English and the Japanese version. So, so it's safe to say that it the song was basically a one-for-one translation. Yeah. Just is just a in its own way a cover. Okay, I didn't actually know that. I did not know this. Again, I have I first time watching the show this weekend, but um, that's good to know actually. Because then I that's don't have to question the lyrics of the song and how it was written because that's the same in the Japanese. Cool. Um, but yeah, this it sounds really really beautiful. The the song itself. Um, and Caitlin's voice is just fantastic. And, and again, it's the song in Caitlin's version, and now that I'm learning about this, Caitlin's version of the song is used several other times throughout the course of the show as part of the actual soundtrack, which is actually a really interesting touch. But it, Caitlin's Janice definitely has, like, this grace and this poise about her that I just really loved and I really found amazing. Um, Alexis and Savin, I'm going to kind of talk together because they're both in the same episode. So, Chris Sabat's Bolton is this tough guy, but he kind of does soften up as the episode goes on. But his interactions with Alexis as Nico are just fantastic. Because he's like, the fuck you doing, kid? Why are you giving me this flower crown? I don't want this shit. Leave me alone. But the more he interacts with Nico, the more he just kind of becomes fond of her and wants to protect her. And um, the end of... (sighs) The end of the episode is actually really saddening um, because both Chris has to just sit there and wait um, for essentially his own death. Meanwhile, he's watching over Nico, who unfortunately dies at the hands of one of the other robots um, and ends up buried. And Alexis's character is also just a kind and gentle little girl. Nico actually used to watch over Luna. Yeah, that's one of the key parts in it is um 
with her keeping an eye on watching over Luna, similar to, um, oh, another character we're actually going to talk about in the next section, as well as, um, the Yuzei's, um, older <coughs> sister. Um, she, and then she has this malfunction, all this fun stuff. But Alexis is still, like, this kind and gentle little girl, um, and always just caring for others. Um, she wraps up, <laughs> she wraps up Cashin's leg. She gives, she tries to wrap up Bolton's leg by giving him an arm for a leg. <laughs> that shit was adorable. He's like, what are you doing? This isn't even a leg. You're giving me an arm for a leg, you <laughs> idiot. And she's just sitting there all smiles like, ha. Freaking Nico is cute and adorable. Alexis just makes it cute and adorable. Um, and then where is my note about Greg? Greg, I think, is the other one-off episodic character that I really, really enjoy. Um, because he has a lot more of the philosophical tones to him. Because he wants, like, like Jet was saying, he wants to leave his mark on the world. But he also, he's an artist and he's one of those stubborn fools who just doesn't want to die until he, like, gives, like, delivers the world his masterpiece. Which for him is basically painting the town. Because this the town that Cashin visits where he meets Margot is one where every ruler of that town will paint over it, the entire city, a different color. So he wants to. So Margot's idea is to paint the entire town in his color. Not to show that he's a ruler, but he wants to give some kind of life to that city once again. Which is actually really, really interesting. Um, again, going back to the themes of what it means to be alive, what it means to want to die or want to live. And it's just the portrayal itself. Greg is another one that usually eight times out of ten, he plays these very loud and spastic characters. But similar to Stephanie Young as Lizbell, Greg's is a very softer tone. And in the a way this is the kind of tone that really resonates with this character rather, rather well and I think it's a perfect match um, given the artistic um, and eccentric personality that Margot might have but also the quiet kind of thoughtful and contemplating um, demeanor that the character also has so I think out of all of the single episode characters Margot might be my favorite <sighs> I think out of the single episode characters, Margot might be my favorite. Also, side note, not to confuse this Margot with editor Margot, by the way. <laughs> Multiple Margots involve boys and girls. Hi, Margot. <laughs> Hi, Margot. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Margot. Hey, um, dude. Oh, hello there. Yeah, I think out of all the episodic characters, um, Margot is probably my favorite out of the bunch. Um because of I really like complex characters I really do there's always just something really about complex characters that you can just sink your teeth into and there even with the span of one episode for Mar uh, Gregor's Margot and Carrie Savage's uh, Sofita there was a lot into it that I really just enjoyed about those characters so much okay um Megan yeah, there are one-off episodes in characters in this show who are better developed than, like, some 12-episode anime characters. It's kind of great. It's it's really great. Um, I guess we'll start with Caitlyn's character. 
Um, I really do like that they dubbed the singing. It's probably some of the best dub singing that I've heard. Um, even as of late, like, I'm usually that person who's like, I like dubs. I'm usually very iffy on dub songs, mostly because, like, I'm that asshole who, like, almost exclusively listens to Japanese music all day. Um, like, I'm that person who's, like, who's, like, listening to Aqua, like, every day and, like, Sayu singing. I think that Caitlyn does a really good job bringing this beauty and the grace to the character, especially for the journey that they go on to this episode to do this concert. And just, I really do like that they used uh, her singing and then another actress's singing later on. Because she's not the only person who got to sing. Um, I think that she she was good. I I don't remember her episode as much as the show went on. Like, it, it didn't stick with me as hard. Who did stick with me and wins the derby <laughs> of the episodes that fucked me up the hardest were Sappin and Alexis yes. Tipton. Um, Margot second. Because, okay, the way that yeah. they, the way that they, they code uh, Nico is as a mentally disabled child. Uh, and Alexis's giggling and just joy and childish wonder and fear maxed against Chris Sabat's anger and just, like, why the fuck am I alive? Just let me die. Jesus Christ, I hate this shit. Go to hell. I don't want your help. Um, is just really really palpable like it is such and then when she she dies i think at chris Rager's hands too just like holy shit you're just like oh oh no oh and then chris goes like fucking vegeta and kills him it's just like oh no this hurts me like this sounds the most like chris sabbat talking like a normal human being type of role and I, I really loved it, but I think of the all the three of them, though that episode emotionally affected me more, I think my favorite performance out of all of these is Greg Ayers' as Margot. Like, there's just such a, a hope a hopeful joy and optimism and passion that gets put through in Greg's performance that as that episode ends and he's saying goodbye, like I I got more fucked up. By the Margot, the, the, not the episode with Margot, the episode with, uh, Nico. But I think the closest I got to crying was with Margot asking Cashern to paint him. And just, like, the whole idea that, like, there's, like, I guess this weird undertone of, like, people knowing that they're going to die and accepting their death and euthanasia. And you're just, like... Oh, Margo, keep holding on. You gotta paint the town, Mark. It's like Simba nudging his dad's corpse. Um, like, Dad, you gotta get up. And 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 except for this time, Mufasa's awake as his as he's bleeding out from his spine being broken and trampled on. And he's just like, Simba, let me die. Pull the trigger, Piglet. Um just I'm making this ten times more depressing, and I'm sorry. Um, really loved it. Again, super solid ensemble performance. It's really hard to say anything negative about a lot of these things. Like, they were super fucking great. And yeah, go ahead, Roots. I'm going to go grab Adrian because I need it. So, I'm... I'm glad that it was brought up that the, um... That the song in episode 8 was originally in English. Because that actually... 
changes a little bit of what I'm about to say. Because I... Well, I think Caitlyn's singing voice is great. Uh, the... The song and kind of the awkward way it's put together kind of didn't mesh very well, I guess. But um, other than that, she um, she got a really great episode to work with and the the character Janice uh, trying to get this concert together. And I, I, I almost lost it at the scene where all the robots are getting together and oh yeah, they've got a violin and a cello really and... Like they're they're all joining in. Like that was that was really beautiful. I I am like the sequence where the song is playing is captured fighting is like, like that whole scene is just really beautiful. But um I I do like that Caitlin Glass gave her a sense of elegance without going full bore into diva mode. And um God Alexis Tipton and Chris Sabat. I, I don't know if I can add a lot to the conversation that Megan and Steph haven't already, but I got really interesting vibes out of it watching it now. Because, um, Chris Sabat, I don't know if Jet brought this up with the, um, with the characters Chris Sabat has played, but I got really big vibes of Kikucho from Samurai 7, from him. Oh, oh yeah, it does sound very, very similar to that. Like, I mean, to be fair, Kikucho is a bit more of a boisterous character, while uh, Bolton is just angry and surly, and but towards the end, they both have the same general attitude toward a, toward a little girl character that leads them to do things that end up being acts of heroism. And I really like Alexis Tipton's performance as Nico as well. Like, that was... She... As much as I was saying with Carrie Savage and the and the childish aspects she gave to Sophita, like, it really worked here as, with, uh, with Nico. And I know she's... She's meant to be a very caring character that kind of had the circuitry of her brain damaged in uh, in the ruin, and like she's apparently degrading pretty quickly. And I like that was it, it broke my heart when she died, and her acting against Ringo was also really spectacular. And Greg Ayers is Margot, which by the way, from before, I don't think anybody got the um got the Simpsons joke I was making with Mr. McGreg with uh with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. Cause it was uh he, he was a patient of Dr. Nick's. The the quack doctor of Springfield. Who I guess inadvertently swapped an arm and a leg. But it was... Oh. oh. Yeah, here comes Roots of Justice with the old 90s references. Yeah. Back to things. Uh, Greg Ayers is Margot. Um, I... He's definitely up there with uh, with Lizbell. 
Those and another set of characters that we're not talking about, the um, the three children from episode 17? Ho 16? Hody and Hotor. Oh yeah, the three creepy kids! Yeah. And Hodor, who's holding the door. God damn it! <laughs> I don't even watch Game of Thrones and I understand that reference. <laughs> but, um, like, yeah, those those three were my favorite one-off characters of, of the show. But, um, like, I, I like that Greg gave Margot this sort of determination and energy to him, even when, you know... Preacher Kent Williams is kind of yelling at him to just accept his fate and and die with the rest of them. And meanwhile, he manages to get the town painted and Ketron goes and fucks it all up. And I actually like even before even before Margot died, like that was what got me in the episode. Just him looking at the ruins of the town, he just managed to successfully paint and he's just like oh yeah well you know what i'll just do it again mm -hmm. and and the speech of can you paint me in my color or like was really good but especially the part of or you know what i'll let you choose the color god that like the ending of that episode is just a punch to the gut and then the episode just reaches into your pocket and takes all your money out. Uh, takes your credit card, blows it on a vacation. My heart! Okay, uh, so I guess I'll go. Uh, so, I'm uh, starting with Janice. I've uh, got to admit something a little embarrassing here. Uh, I've watched this number a few times while it has kind of been a while since my last rewatch of the show. Uh, I gotta say, I actually did not, I actually did not know until this time around it was Caitlin Glass. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's like I guess it's just because like you know I've I guess it's just you know just one of those instances where I'm not really used to her playing these kinds of characters. Uh, I'm usually used to Caitlin Glass, you know, being very peppy or you know sounding very soft spoken. So this is uh, kind of on the deeper end of her vocal register. Uh, anyway, I like that Caitlin kind of plays Janice with an air of confidence and mystique that kind of uh, makes the character feel very magnetic, and it's. Uh, kind of easy to see why Kasher gets drawn to her almost immediately. And uh, and I really like uh, how her, a lot of her interactions with Kasher in the episodes. He kind of, you know, helps to reassure him a little bit that, you know, that what's happening to the world isn't entirely on him. And, uh, you know, I thought Assuming Toads kind of got that sense of empathy across really well. And, um, and like with Lizbell, I just kind of really like Genesis' story in general. And I like that... A little bit where she kind of acknowledges that the ruin is affecting her, but she still kind of feels it's her duty to provide hope with songs. Uh, and you kind of get the feeling that these songs just start to waver her to provide hope to others in a world with, you know, seemingly nothing to hope for, but kind of a way to provide hope for herself. And I thought Caitlin kind of expressed those little quiet fears very well. Uh, but of course, my main thing with this performance was, you know, how well Caitlin can sing. And uh, just the song at the end of the episode is just both a really good song and just a really good climax of the episode. And um, I just really like how Caitlin pulled off that song. It's and you know how it plays throughout the rest of the throughout several other episodes. It's it's just a really good song to me. So yeah, Caitlin gets a big thumbs up for me. Uh, moving on to Bolton and Nico. Uh, so, unlike some of the other cast members we talked about mm -hmm. here, it kind of goes without saying I was very familiar with Chris Sabat by the time I watched this dub. 
Uh, and I definitely liked his bolt-in. It's a pretty typical role for him in terms of, you know, coming off as very brash and loud. Uh, but I like how both his character and performance kind of evolved over the course of the episode as he... And in the beginning, he's kind of, you know, driven by a desire to survive and kind of lamenting that he can't move anymore. And then... Okay, and then it kind of shifts to... Okay, then it kind of shifts, you know, getting a little softer as Nico kind of continues to care for him and he gets uh, pretty attached to her by the end, which kind of makes the ending to the episode all the more tragic. And when Bolton's kind of been able to, to prevent her death, and Chris is delivering that last scene, kind of had to be tearing up a bit. You can really tell what kind of the amount of regret he was going through. And I also feel really bad for him, especially concerning that, you know, concerning how the show ends, he's probably going to be sitting there forever waiting for Casher to come back. Or, you know, will be dead by the time he comes back. Uh, as for Alexis Stinton, uh, this was another time mm -hmm. where it was one of the first roles I'd ever heard her in. Uh, and I definitely appreciate how well she was able to make Nico sound like an actual child, and it kind of... It kind of helped to make the character even more endearing. I like that, you know, even though Nico is very clearly disabled, Alexis kept the performance relatively grounded and, you know, didn't lead into any weird stereotypes. And uh, it definitely kind of goes without saying for, for me that her set-up performance, I mean, that the set-up moment for me was definitely where, you know, she kind of protects the Luna doll from the bandits and the way Alexis was able to carry across her determination was, you know, it was really sweet and it made me feel... Uh, sad for her when she ends up taking the bucket. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Greg Ayers' Margo. Uh, of all the one-off stories in this show, this one was probably my favorite, so I definitely like what Greg brought to the table with his performance. I uh, like what Anson Clarizakos, I like that he kind of brought a little bit of sunshine to this otherwise very dreary show. And I like that he did a really good job of making Margo's passion for his art feel very sincere and captivating. And uh, I liked that while, you know, this wasn't exactly on the deeper end of Greg's vocal register, that he did a very good job of making Margot sound, uh, you know, kind of a little mature and wise, since it does kind of seem like he's lived a while, despite how he looks. Uh, but uh, what definitely really endeared me to his performance was definitely that scene where he was kind of talking with uh, Kent Williams' character, and, you know, uh, who had kind of decided that, you know, there's no point in trying to do anything if they're all going to die anyway. And Margot kind of just responding that, you know, the fear of death shouldn't be any reason to give up on leaving something behind. And, uh, you know, that, that just kind of resonated with me. And I was definitely kind of, you know, doing part to how good Greg's delivery was here. And I was definitely really impressed with his delivery during Margot's final scene where he asked Casher to paint him in his colors. And you know how he's kind of terrified of the idea of no one remembering him after he dies. It was a really good scene, and, you know, it made yeah. Kasher's last line when he says he'll never forget meeting him. It, that just really broke my heart. So, yeah, good job, Greg. And uh, with that, uh, we're good to move away from our one-off characters and get a little bit into our main cast. Mm -hmm. um, so, for our first pair of major characters, we have Dune and Breaking Dun -dun -dun. Boss. Uh, Dune... <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. Dude. Got some tremors here. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, are there uh, are so, there any giant sandworms that are gonna come out? Yeah. Uh, so dude <laughs> is a robot who wants Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, there were? Okay. Uh, so, so you are right. It's just the Oh shit, my bad. Oh no, no, there were sandworms in Dune. Sorry. <laughs> yes! Okay, uh, 
Uh, so Dude is a robot who wants her as Luna's personal bodyguard that has never quite gotten over her death. Uh, while Breaking Boss was once the leader of the robotic empire that overthrew humanity and created Kasher, Dio, and Lena, uh, but, uh, you know, he's just kind of been reduced to a drifter after the ruin. Uh, it's also worth noting that in the original Neo-Human Kasher, he was, in fact, the bad guy. So, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, so, uh, playing Dune, we have Jason Douglas, and for Breaking Boss, we have J. Paul Slavens. Uh, Jason Douglas has played such characters as Tomomi Masaoka from Psychopaths, Goto from Parasite to Maxim, and Beers from Dragon Ball Super. Uh, as for J. Paul Slavens, he's mostly played a lot of side characters, uh, but he's also done such roles as Amayo Jinguro from Basilisk, uh, Amon from Dragon Ball Z The Tree of Might, and Birdie Biojack from the One Piece 3 Day 2 Years special. Er, wait, was it 3 Days 2 Years? Ah, whatever. <laughs> Question. Isn't this the guy that, like, used to do music at Funimation who became, like, a Texas state senator? Really? Hold on. I mean, I don't think he's been in anything... I mean, uh, maybe? I don't think he's been in anything recent, so Keep that's going. certainly possible. Keep going! I'm gonna research this shit. Um, so, um, Ruth? Alright, so... I I really like the episode where they debuted Dune. Like, he's, he's fighting with, um... With Dio and Leda, and he just gets his ass handed to him. And then he's wandering around the, uh, he's wandering around the wasteland, just basically crawling. And then he shows up later, because you initially think this guy is just like a one-off character, and then when the uh, when the ending changes, and you realize, oh, this guy's actually doing something. Um, and he's Cashern and. Um, and Liuze find him just crawling in this wasteland of glass. It was a really beautiful episode, by the way. Mm-hmm. And he's he's just muttering that he has to find Luna, and then he realizes, oh, the guy who killed Luna is right here. And then, oh, wait, she might actually be alive. And just going from one extreme to the other was just... It was it was really tragic and and um, Jason Douglas did a really great job bringing that out. Unfortunately, I don't have much to say about the character as a whole because, like, let's be real. While he's the right hand of Luna, and he shows up again later in the um, toward the end of the show, just to basically get abused by Luna. Because her her entire personality has changed. Um, he really doesn't get to do too too much, but I really like Jason Douglas's um, sort of dry and stoic performance as um, as Dune. Now Paul Slavin's in Breaking Boss. Holy crap! Like, I I like when he shows up in the show proper as the set-up-to-be-main-antagonist. Where he's just hovering over Kasherin's shoulder, whispering okay. doubts into his mind. Interesting. Sort of... I don't know if it was intentional, but I sort of got the allegory of Jesus in the desert with Satan whispering in his ear. 
And that was, and when that clicked in my mind, that was really fascinating. I think it was probably a hundred percent intentional, honey. I mean, it's a tokusatsu adaptation. Let's be real; it was probably intentional. But it's it's just, oh yeah, he he journeys with Kashern and his party for a little while, and he's just casting these seeds in Kashern's mind to trying to get him back onto his side. And I really like the last couple of episodes where he um where he joins up with luna and he's which really this is where the satan allegory comes comes into full bore where instead of you know where kesher's relationship with uh breaking boss is sort of jesus and satan breaking boss's relationship with luna seems more like Satan and Dorian Gray, where he grants Luna the one thing she really wants, but at what price, you know? She gives... She gets a following out of Breaking Boss, but they all end up reeking of death and decay, which she fears. But that's... That'll be when we get to Luna later on in the episode, but... Like there were there were some really great allegories and um, Paul Slavins just kind of nails this. He used to be a big thing and then and is trying to get back on top using whatever means he can. I mean I'm I'm really bad at like he gets the sort of washed up aspect of Breaking Boss. I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Like, I'm, I'm basically done. I'm just kind of rambling at this point. I'm a little tired. Okay, uh, Megan? So, Jason Douglas is Dune. I was like, oh, it's time for Jason Douglas to make me cry again. Because I'm a huge Ancient Megas Bride fan. And everyone knows that Nevin makes me cry. Oh, yeah. And this reminded me a lot of a less old Nevin from Ancient Megas Bride. Where it's like he's more like your, your 40-something-year-old dad... And to me, the, the parts where he's kind of, like, dying and decrepit and crawling across the wasteland are very fascinating. But it's the episode where he and Luna get to talk. And he's planting just all these flowers for her. And then she's like, I don't like this. Do it again. We have new seeds. And Catherine's like, what the hell? Why are you doing this? They're still alive. And he's like, she doesn't like death. I'm doing it for her. And there's just, like, this sense of, like, okay, this is gonna sound like a really weird allegory, but who the hell here has seen Homeward Bound? Actually, I don't remember. Oh, seen no. That's weird. Okay. Okay, we're gonna fix that. Um, I've seen Air Bud. Does that at least count? No, that's no. completely different. <laughs> Stephanie, <laughs> shut up. Homeward bound compared it to air bound. Involves animals. What? Stephanie, <laughs> Stephanie, you're, Stephanie, you're appro- <laughs> Stephanie, you are approaching the Sandlot incident. But the homeward yeah. bound Megan, animals Megan, talk. Megan, Megan, Steph, Steph, Stephanie, I, Stephanie, Stephanie, look, look, Stephanie, no, 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 Stephanie. No, no, no. 
uh-uh, holy no. shit, this is like your boyfriend unlike with the sand Unlike my boyfriend line. in the sand mom said, no, no, no. Uh, look, unlike mom said it was Andrew's the... turn to use the brain cell. No, 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 uh-uh, no. Uh-uh, no, 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 no. You, no, no. you sit in your unlike... cone of shame. Megan, no, you sit in your cone Megan. of shame. You sit no, in your no, no, goddamn Megan, cone of shame. Unlike my boyfriend in the sand No, 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 no. I at least know which one overbound is. Shut up. No, shut up. I can say I haven't seen it. I at least know what it is. Compared to Andrew not knowing what the fuck the Sandlot is and mixing it up. Okay, with look. Overbounded air butter, nothing alike. Sit in the corner. <laughs> no. Oh, sit in your corner. <laughs> sit in the corner. Fuck you. No, I'm not. Sit in your corner. You are in timeout. I don't fucking care. You are in timeout. Okay, okay. I'm gonna need to get you two back on track. I'll be good for Jet. Shut up, Steph! Anyway, where I was going with this was that. <laughs> Stephanie, shut up. For real. Please shut up. In the nicest way possible, please let me say this. So, J Dune reminds me of Chance from Homeward Bound. <laughs> the really old golden retreat. I make. <laughs> Honey? Are you okay over there? Chase. or. Uh, Chance fucked me up. Yeah, Ch no. Was Chance. Was no, Chance was the middle dog. Oh right, right, right. What was the, what was the old golden retriever's name? Oh, I don't remember. But he, his storyline fucked me up as a kid. I'm looking this up. Homer, Homer. By the way, for all of you who are like actual fetuses, um, uh, it's about Shadow. A, a it was Shadow. Shadow. Oh, sh it's yeah. Shadow. Oh, yeah. Oh, he reminds me of God, Shadow, Shadow from Homeward Bound. To which, if you've never seen Homeward Bound, Shadow's arc will fuck you up. Um, so, I, I'm just saying, like, that's what that reminds me of. It's just, like, an old dog trying to go home. And you feel really bad, and I think Jason really gets that. And then, I am actually super unfamiliar with Paul Slavins as an actor. I don't watch a lot of things that he's in. So, I was pleasantly surprised with him. He makes uh, Breaking Boss sound like a, a cool, like, devil, like, devil-on-your-shoulder type voice. I think he gets it across really well. Um, I was super, super fascinated by him. Even though I wasn't super fascinating with Breaking Boss as a character, I honestly don't think he needed to exist. I think Not he should really. have lived as, like, a flashback... Sh what? I, I'm agreeing with you. He... He didn't I need to he, be in the in the end of the show. Yeah, like, like I said, I like the show, but I really think that the show was better when it didn't have a plot. Um... So I felt he was really tacked on, but I did enjoy the performance. But I'm done, and I'm gonna so let uh, Homeward Bound over here go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you also looking at Kangaroo Jack? You're out of timeout now. I saw your tweet, Roots. <laughs> I'll have you know, I'm looking up the DVD on Amazon it. right now. <laughs> <laughs> Why watch Endgame when you could watch Kangaroo Jack nine times for the oh, same price? Uh, yes. Jesus Christ, are we all going to get really fucked up and watch Kangaroo Jack? Okay, for reference, because people are going to probably be watching this like weeks yep. after the tweet. Um, there was a there was a tweet that basically pointed out that Endgame right now is twenty seven dollars on YouTube and Kangaroo Jack is only three. Uh, anyway, to answer the answer, because um, Megan, you were wondering about Paul Salvins being the politician and all that fun stuff, right? One of you were. Uh, the answer is I don't think so. I think he's a radio DJ though, because um, he has popped up in some recent stuff. Like, he mm -hmm. popped up in Rolling, Rolling Girls, Centaur's Life. 
He's actually in Tokyo Ghoul Route A. Ah. Uh, and there is a show he isn't currently, but I'm not going to talk about it. So, speaking of Paul Salvins, I'm also not familiar He's with him stuff. as a voice actor. I also have the least amount of notes for him, unfortunately. Because <laughs> the Breaking Boss, while I understand what, possibly why the character was there... It didn't make sense for me to see him in the show, if that makes sense. It's a character that I feel like the show could have been fine without, realistically. Like, the first time we actually really, really get to see him, he just becomes the exposition dump. And is like, Asher, you have to remember, this is what happened. I'm like, okay, cool. He, he... He kind of pops up out of nowhere during the last second half or last third of the show, and it's, I don't quite understand. Um, unfortunately, because of that as well, I barely remember now what the breaking boss sounds like, which that's bad, because I finished the show a few hours ago. Like, he sounded like an archetypal... It's Funimation anime villain of like the mid Remember? to late two thousands. Yeah, not meant as an I insult, mean, but that, that's not to say Paul Salvins is ter is a bad actor. No, not in the least. Yeah, it's just that for me, the Breaking Boss was probably one of the more forgettable characters. So I unfortunately I don't have much to really say or talk about, which really sucks. Um, but I do want to go back and see more things. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, because Breaking Boss, I mean, I think as a character gave the least impression to me. I honestly don't have anything really to say about it, except that it's fine. That's not a detriment to Paul as an actor, that's just the character in general is just forgettable to me. Um, what's less forgettable is definitely Jason Douglas as Dune. Not by much, because Dune is also not one that's in there much. Jason Douglas, for sure, is, um, one of the more broken characters of the show. Because um, for Dune, he's Luna's guardian and protector. He's um, he's known as the god of death and all this fun stuff. And after Luna's subsequent death at the hands of Kashern, um, prior to the start of the show, like he is just so broken because he served Luna so faithfully and admired her so much. And then you just see him as this broken down man just crawling around and everything. And he's just so lost. And God, that kind of fucked me up a little bit. Because <laughs> you just feel bad for him. Like he's this, in the flashbacks we do see of Dune, he's this um, stern and authoritative figure. It's just like, I'm going to protect Mistress Luna or Lady Luna or whatever it is. And then you just see how he is in the present day, just crawling around. Um, when um, Kasher and Louise um, meet him in the second half of the show, he's just like crawling across. And mind you, this is after he gets his ass handed to him by Dio. Um, he's just crawling across the ground trying to get to Luna. And he's just... Try, he's just still trying to be the guardian. He's still trying to serve his lady. 
um, to the best of his ability, and his death is just, it hurts. Really does, because he subsequently is essentially betrayed by Luna, because Luna just doesn't want anything to do with him. Like, she, he's just on the ground, and Cashin and the others are at his side, just trying to make sure he's telling him to stay alive, and Luna shows up, He's like, she, and she tells him that he smells of, like, death and decay and wants nothing to do with him and walks away after everything he did for her. It's, it's one of the deaths that, aside from two big ones, um, that hurt a lot, honestly. Um, and for Jason Douglas, who has that authoritative voice, who has that commanding presence, I think it works very, very well. Um, for Dune and his character, and it really did hit. It hurt. It hurt quite a bit. Okay. Uh, Alright, um, so for me, I guess I'll start with Dune. Uh, so, out of everyone in the main cast, I probably have the least to say about Dune in regards to Jason Douglas's performance, since the character didn't really talk all that much. I mean, a lot of his lines in the early episodes where he shows up are either, like, angry growls or kind of incoherent ramblings. Yeah, but I do think Jason did a good job of presenting this guy as somebody who's kind of wallowing in a lot of past regret and has kind of been swallowed by his own failures. And uh, it does make things very interesting when he does actually meet up with Cashier and then all that regret is kind of channeled into pure rage and a thirst for vengeance. And, you know, and that all comes across really well with Jason's delivery. I mean, of course, though, in the end, even though he loses, Cashier kind of decides to spare him and gives him a newfound hope that Luna's alive. And uh, when we do eventually see him in the next uh, in the next set of episodes, he's been reunited with her, and he's a lot more put together. Uh, but he's also, you know, kind of a little bit more reserved and quiet, and Jason does a really good job of making that transition feel very believable. Uh, but definitely what really won me over with this one was Jason's delivery during Dune's final moments, where he uh, kind of confesses that even though he's devoted his entire life towards Luna, he's, he's never really wanted anything more than to just kind of watch her from a distance, which... Kind of makes her complete rejection of him just really heartbreaking. Seriously, screw you, Luna. Uh, good. Uh, anyway, it definitely made this character pretty endearing to me in the end, even if his arc was kind of a little on the nose. Uh, and then uh, moving on to Breaking Boss. Uh, so, out of everyone in the main cast, uh, this is probably the performance I've kind of the most personally struggling about. Uh, mostly because I did watch a Japanese version of this show, and I, and I kind of can't help but compare it to how it sounded to the late Kenji Utsumi's performance. Um, so, uh, if you didn't know who Kenji Utsumi was, in addition to being the original voice of Breaking Boss in the 80s version of Neo-Human Cashern, uh, he was also the voice of Rao from Fist of the North Star and uh, Coach Kamigawa in Hajime de Weepo, and uh, the original voice of Shenron from Dragon Ball, so uh, he had he was a voice with a lot of presence. And uh, that definitely... Damn, okay. He, he, it's very influential. Yeah. Man. Uh, so uh, that definitely carried over pretty well to this uh, performance as Breaking Boss. Since, you know, uh, Breaking Boss was kind of ruler of a large empire at one point, and uh, while he has been reduced to kind of something of a drifter, Kenji Utsumi soon was definitely bold and distinct enough that he'd have no trouble buying that. Uh, in comparison, while Paul didn't, like, you know, sound bad, his voice doesn't have that same sense of presence to me. And while he does, so, you know, sound very intimidating when he needs to, it's never. It was never quite enough to kind of help me buy into the idea of this guy as a former dictator. And what I do think that Paul's performance got across really well was Breaking Boss as a wanderer. And he made it sound like enough of an enigma that you could never quite tell if he feels any regret for his role in the world's destruction or if he's just kind of, 
you know, in order to fold himself to believe he could ever really be at fault for this. And also kind of blocked a lot of his little interactions with Catherine and Dia, where he uh, kind of shifts between being something of an, of an observer and then kind of actively encouraging them to keep going. Uh, but of course, as we kind of see towards the end of the show, when his character gets unraveled a little more, uh, it becomes clear that Brecky Boss does feel some sense of responsibility for everything that happened. And I liked Paul's delivery during that one scene where he's uh, kind of at the great side of his former empire, uh, with that one random gravekeeper. And he kind of indirectly admits that while he did kind of attempt to bear the burden of all the lives that ended because of him, uh, in the end he kind of ended up running away from that responsibility, and uh, it did kind of help me to sell me on the complexity of the character a little bit. And it definitely makes his eventual attempt at uh, kind of atoning for everything he did a little more believable. And uh, when he decides to eventually quote-unquote join with Luna and fight Kashern. And uh, you can never really tell if he had actually pledged loyalty to her or if he was just kind of waiting for Kashern to come back. Uh, but it definitely made their uh, little short fight scene at the end very interesting. And it, it felt like a pretty decent way to settle things with that character, even if I do kind of agree he wasn't totally necessary to the show. Uh, on the whole, this was probably the weakest performance of the main cast for me, but I definitely still liked it. And I thought it was pretty consistent with what the rest of the dub was going for. And uh, with that, I guess we'll move on to our next pair. Uh, so, next up, we have our two quote-unquote main antagonists. I say quote-unquote because this show doesn't really have any actual villains. Everyone's kind of miserable in their own way here. Let's face it, the biggest uh, bitch in the world is Luna. <laughs> you can't tell me I'm wrong! Ah, uh, you're definitely not wrong. God. Fuck yeah. Luna! Luna is a bitch! Leda is... Also Who lost the sassy child? <laughs> yep, um, so uh, we have Dio and... Yep. Uh, so we had Dio and Leda. Uh, both of them are highly advanced robots created by Bracking Boss to create humanity... to replace humanity alongside Kashern. Uh, with Dio being uh, determined to defeat Kashern and become the new Bracking Boss, while Leda is his lover, I guess, who pushes Dio to become a great ruler... Uh, while also wanting to control things from behind the scenes, so basically Lady Macbeth. Yeah, uh, that's kind of a good. <laughs> that's kind of a good parallel, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so playing Dio, we have Jerry Jewell, uh, and for Lena, we have Shelley Colleen Black. Uh, Shelley Colleen Black, you'll know more for her roles in ADV and Sentai dubs, but uh, she's played characters such as the Agenda from A Comic Got Killed, Karen Lowe from German God, and Liza from In the Abyss. Uh, Jerry Jewell, on the other hand, is a funny veteran. Uh, he's played such characters as Odin from Kenichi the Mightiest Disciple, Claire Sandfield, aka the Rail Trains for Bakano. And because it's top and, and because it's, it's very possible considering who plays Catherine, and also because I just wanted to see Megan's reaction. Kyo Soma from both is the fruit basket. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> Can I go first, please? Can I go first, please? Yes, go ahead. So I'd like to point out that the show is a 0 out of 10 because Dio never threw a road roller at Cashern. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was a color no, swap no, no. Cashern, but it is I, Dio! Jerry Jewel! He never throws a road roller at him in a world full of robots. <laughs> 0 out of 10 anime. Fuck the show. 
Who doesn't love an angsty Jerry Jewel character? I love angsty Jerry <laughs> <laughs> Angsty Jerry Jewel character Jerry Jewel character. Just like Dio. Just Dio! And now for everybody in the comments going Muda 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 Um But uh no I immediately like that was fucking up. Oh, that was so bad! I'm going to fucking hell. Uh, but Dio, Jerry Jewel as Dio was very captivating. He was angsty, he was moody, he was, like, he's a man with a fixation, and that fixation is Cashern. Like, I don't know, I'm surprised, like, I guess because they're brothers, there's not, like, horrible, awful fanfics of, like... <laughs> Dox Cashard, but uh, I don't want to test those waters. I refuse to. Uh, I think that Jerry, this is some of some of my like, honestly, Jerry's up there is one of my favorite performances in the show. He's angsty. He's moody. He's comf like he is. He is like a really angry child with an adult's body. Um, he just wants to, like even Lita says you're becoming a man. About him. So mm -hmm. the fact that Jerry plays him as this, like, toddler with, like, superpowers. Or, not toddlers, like, ten-year-old with superpowers becoming a teenager. And then becoming a man. Uh, I think he gets the, the depth in that vo his voice across. And the complexities of this character. This is probably a character that was probably a ton of fun to come play. Um, assuming Jerry Jules likes playing villains. Um... But even then, he's not a villain. He's just more of an antagonist, and he's just as lost as anybody else. And by the end of it, um, I think even he realizes what he's done. So he ends up asking to save Leda. And then Shelly Colleen Black as Leda was awesome, because I fucking love Shelly Colleen Black uh, performances. She was manic. She was conniving. She was sensual. She was, like, all across the board. And, like... The part where she's with the kids is so creepy and terrifying. Oof. The, 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 like, the episode the glass the, cradle can literally... Like, the what? flashback in that episode where she's... Pregnant. Yeah. With, I think, Ring... I think it's implied it's Ringo. Yeah. I was I was gonna bring that up, that it's, it's implied her child was Ringo. I think that part's really creepy, and then the part where after she's gone mad, and, uh... Because... She she thinks that she's got an eternal life from Luna, but it's distorting her into a monster. So I think she ends up in, like, this pile of robotic bodies, and she's, like, holding a baby against her shoulder as it's crying, and she's, like, doing the motherly voice, and then Ringo finds her. You're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's so creepy, and it's so good. Oh, they, and they played off each other so well, like, the, like, the childishness of Jerry's Dio and, like, this, the motherly sensuality of Lita, of Shelly's Lita, is just, like, such a powerhouse combination for antagonists. Like, hell yeah, give me more. Somebody else go. Okay, uh, Roots. Yeah, um, another interesting point I wanted to bring up with Dio is, um, how he contrasts against Kashern as compared to Lita. Because um, Kashrin as a character is very, very stoic. 
and doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve, while on the on the other hand, uh, Dio is brash, impulsive, and just a conniving, spoiled child. And I I really like that. It was really a surprise to come back to the show and watch Jerry Jewell play this very spoiled child character. Like, I, I'm sure he's done it a lot since, but it it's really stuck in my head since I started started watching the show for this episode like a week ago. And um, his fights against Cashern are really great because he. You can tell that Dio is completely out of his league. He's getting more and more frustrated to the point of getting, like, completely pissed off about the situation. And, like, to the point where he would reject immortality just to be able to get a shot in at Kashern. Like, his arrogance, his... Uh, it, it's, it's all just really great, and I really liked it. And, um, and Shelly as Leda. Oh my god. It, um, in all honesty, it wasn't a performance I liked when I first, when I was first watching through it. It, it felt kind of rough. But then as it kept going, and particularly when we got to the episode with the children, and... And her and both her flashback and when she's just tormenting these children for the location of Luna. Oh, that it, it gave me goosebumps. Um, there, I I really don't have much to say about them beyond that because um, like Megan mentioned a lot of what really interests me about the characters, so including the lack of road rollers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, zero out of ten lack of road roller. Okay, uh, Seth? Oh, boy. Um, I'm gonna start with Jerry first, because who doesn't love an angsty Jerry Jewel character? Good, that's the right answer. Nobody's saying anything, that's a good answer. <laughs> good answer! If you would, if someone would spoke enough, then I would be very upset. Um, <laughs> all joking. Well, what actually. <laughs> Shut up. Um, I mean, well, all jokes aside, like, Jerry Jewel may be damn good at playing a lot of things, and angsty characters is one of them. Um, but Jerry Dio is an evil shit. He's very naive, he's very childish. Um, if there's a trope, obviously the edgelord trope comes into play with Dio. Dio's a fucking edgelord. But, um, what's interesting, what is also interesting with Dio is, because... An interesting part of his character that I don't know if it, I don't think he got brought up yet anyway was um, he compared to Lita, he doesn't care about being cured of the ruin. Compared to Lita, um, he would yeah. rather he feels the most alive if he's able to fight Kasher. That's his biggest thing is he wants to fight Kasher. Yes. But he mentions before he dies uh, towards the end is um, that's how he wants to feel alive is by fighting Kasher. He doesn't care about he doesn't actually care about 
ruling over everybody. He doesn't care about being healed from the ruin by Luna. All he wants is to fight Kasher. That's the only thing he wants. He's like, like, you would think throughout the course of the show, he wants to rule over humanity, but later on, as things go on, you can see more of the panic in Jerry, uh, Jerry's portrayal of Dio, as he is just wants to fight Kasher, and that's all he wants, all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> um... And it's really interesting seeing that progression and the change in the character. Um, because, like, I think it was Megan who said it. Because, um, like it was brought up, Lita makes the comment about Dio becoming a man. So that's an interesting... Him and his motivations becoming less childlike in a way. Um, like, he doesn't care about world domination. He doesn't care about healing himself. He'd rather just get a fight with Kashern, and then he's okay with dying. He's fine with that. So long, it's one of those things where it's like, so long as I live a full life and do what I want to do before I die, that's it. Dio is definitely one of those. Uh, Lita. Oh, oh, sweet baby Jesus. Lita. Um... The Lady Macbeth comparison doesn't even begin to describe it. She fucking nuts. <laughs> I love Shelly Colleen Black. She fucking nuts. Because um, Shelly has a very seductive tone to Lita. And it definitely complements Jerry's portrayal of Dio rather well. But at the same time, too, Shelly is... I, be th I think between the two of them, Shelly is the one that you can see as the actual villain of the duo. Because she, because like how Jet was describing her, she's the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. She's the one who's pushing Dio to do these things. And um, at the end of it, Dio's just like, uh, no, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is fight Casher. But Lita is definitely a very complex villain too because of the fact that we learned that she wants to have this chance to be a mother again uh, that she never really got to have she thought it was a failed thing she's just all about wanting this beauty and being perfect and a bunch of other things and wanting to be live forever and bring on this new phase this new world or of um robots uh, to light because realistically she Lita and Kashern are the only three that were designed to actually procreate that's part of their actual programming yeah so it's interesting because of course Kashern and Dio don't give a shit about that Kashern probably doesn't even know didn't even know until um Viking boss and um Oiji which we'll talk about in a second OG, excuse me, Oiji. Wow, he's an Oiji board. Fuck. OG. <laughs> oh no, he's Ouija. <laughs> Luigi. Oh no. Is there a is there a two OG? Uh... Point is, point is, Lita's actually the only one who actually gives a damn about it. Um, because it it's a it's a plot point and a detail that you would think is a throwaway when Breaking Boss brings it up. 
but it actually plays a lot into Lita's character and of herself during the second half of the show. And Shelly is just fantastic. I think she's one of my favorite performances of the show itself. Because it's the seductive tone. It's this need and the selfish desire for this beauty. But at the same time, she just wants to fulfill what she was created to do at the same time. And it's actually really saddening end to her as well because she realizes she realizes what she's done and she realizes the things she had to sacrifice along the way um, including Dio in the end so her story is probably one of the more tragic ones and I think Shelley does fantastic with the performance but yeah this two as a this these two as a pair they work off of each other so well and I think they're fantastic okay uh, I guess I'll go uh, so before I start with Dio, I have a bit of a confession to make. Uh, back when I first watched this dub, I was actually not the biggest fan of Jerry Tool. Uh, I can't remember if it was like Odin from Kenichi or like some character for, for some other show that turned me off from him, but uh, I was definitely not too big of a fan of him. I thought his acting was kind of flat uh, back then. Um, so uh, when I saw him pop up in this show, I was actually a little worried about it. Uh, but uh, looking back, I can definitely say his performance here definitely did a lot to turn my opinion of him around. Uh, so back when we first meet Dio, he's uh, you know very largely dominated by his eggs, and uh, even more so than even more so than Kashin, and uh, that's definitely saying a lot. And uh, Jerry's performance definitely carries a lot of that anger across really well, and uh, you know more or less pulls you into the idea of just how much this guy envies Kashin. Uh, but while he's definitely dominated by a lot of that eggs, we see a lot of uh, other sides of him, you know, like his struggle over whether or not he wants to be a ruler and, you know, his whole strained relationship with Lena. And I know that Jerry did a really good job of making him sound more vulnerable in those moments while, you know, so making it sound like it's coming from the guy who can't stop shouting about how much he wants to be characterized and, oh God, he really is just an extra Kia, isn't he? <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, comparing him to my, like, very vague recollection of Tochiyuki uh, Morikawa's performance. I don't think he sounded quite as charismatic whenever he had to play the role of like being a general, which kind of, I guess, threw me off the first time I watched the dub. Uh, but in a way, I think that Jerry's performance had a little bit more force in that particular area. kind of helps to, uh, you know, kind of better play into the idea that, uh, you know, this isn't exactly something Dio wants to do. And, you know, and that he's pretty willing to give up on that position entirely when he gets a settled score with Kashard. And, uh, speaking of which, his moment where he does settle the score with Kashard is probably my favorite performance. I mean, my, probably my favorite moment with his performance. Uh, you know, the, and, you know, the whole catharsis he feels when he finally gets to achieve his whole lifelong goal. And, uh, while Dio's performance may have felt, you know, and while Dio as a character maybe, maybe felt a little one note up till that point, I thought the idea that, you know, his life has meaning in fighting Kasher and kind of, you know, ties pretty well to this show's overall theme and what it means to live a fulfilling life. And I also appreciated that, you know, in spite of how odd the relationship was at points, you can always tell that when it really came down to it that uh, Dio definitely did care for Lena in his own way. And it's not that Jerry managed to get that across pretty well, too. And, uh, although I really liked it, so I wasn't a big Jerry Jewel fan going into this particular role, I've definitely been pretty satisfied with his work ever since then. And, uh, with that, let's move on to Lena, because, boy, there's a lot to talk about with Lena. 
Uh, so, uh, as so, uh, when Lane is first kind of introduced into the story, she more or less plays the Lady Macbeth archetype. Uh, you know, she largely operates behind the scenes, serving as a kind of seducer for Dio, and, you know, trying to convince him to become the second wrecking boss, while not so secretly lusting after all that power for herself. And, uh, Shelly's performance definitely more or less matches what you would expect from that. And I really appreciate how well he shifts from, you know, the almost motherly tone he takes with Dio whenever she's trying to comfort him. Or, you know, convince him to become a, or convince him to become a king. And then, you know, the more sinister tone she gives off whenever she's, like, you know, expressing her desires to rule over everybody. Uh, but, you know, as we learn over the course of the show, she does care for Dio at least a little bit. And uh, the way, in the motherly way, she kind of soothes his frustrations. Uh, you know, ends up tying pretty well into things because she was a mother at one point, or maybe not. Uh, again, it's kind of left to be up to, it's kind of left up to interpretation as to what exactly happened to her child. Uh, well, and you know, because she thought the child might have died at birth, we'd say thought because again, it's obviously Ringo. Uh, but either way, she's definitely kind of carrying a lot of guilt over what happened to her child, and that definitely kind of... And very clearly ties into her whole obsession with eternal beauty. And uh, it's definitely around that point where Lena kind of drops the whole motherly act and acts a lot more menacing. And I thought that Joey did a really great job in making her whole descent into madness feel very believable and kind of sad. And, you know, in a way that kind of made her whole lingering regrets feel very believable. And uh, Shelly, and while Shelly definitely had a lot of really great scenes throughout the dub, and my favorite is definitely that moment where she kind of runs into Ringo and slowly realizes who she is and how far she's fallen. And it definitely made me, it definitely did a lot to make me kind of pity her in the end. Uh, this is all quite a lot for the closest thing that the show kind of has to a villain. But again, I don't think Lena really is one, at least in a very traditional sense. Like, sure, she does a lot of things for her own interests and self-gratification, but uh, in her own words, she's about as desperate to live as the rest of these characters are. And I feel like in the end we're kind of meant to pity her more than hate her, which kind of, eh, kind of makes her whole final scene with Dio all the more beautiful as, like, you know, even when everything that happens, she realizes that he's still caring about her, and I thought, I just thought that whole bit seeing those two huddled together at the end of episode 23, that actually made me cry a little bit. Uh, but uh, anyway, while there's a lot of rambling, I gotta say that Shelly did a really great job here. And uh, while I can't recall this was my first time hearing her in anything, I definitely loved his performance. And uh, I really appreciate that Jason brought in and out of town for this one because I really can't see anyone else handling the role quite as well as Shelly did. And uh, it's definitely one of my favorite performances in the whole dub, so really great job. And uh, with all that rambling done, it's uh, time to get into uh, some our main cast with uh, three of Kasher's companions, I guess. Who kind of joined him on his whole search to find Luna. Uh, we have OG, Ringo, and Liuze. Uh, so OG is another wanderer who kind of uh, travels the wastelands with Ringo and turns out to be the scientist responsible for creating Kasher and Dio and, and Lena. AKA best uh, dad. Uh, <laughs> he's the best dad! Legit! You think he's not, but when you see him taking care of Ringo, though... Uh, if only you could tell Cash you're dead. <laughs> still, True. my point still stands. He's best dad. True. Yeah, uh, uh, Rigo is a mysterious young robot girl who befriends Cashier after he saves her. And Aliuze is a female robot who wants revenge on Cashier for the death of her sister. Uh, so playing OG, we have the late Jerry Russell, 
For Ringo, we have Monica Riel, and for Lise, we have Brita Palencia. And Jerry Russell played such characters as General Fro Tito from The Gray Man, Tubal with Romeo X Juliet, and Dr. Tim Marco from Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And Monica Riel, you may know for such characters as Michiko Malandro from Michiko and Hachin, uh, Tanya Degurcha from Saga of Tanya the Evil, and Tomiko Kuroi from Watamote. And lastly, Brita Palencia has such characters as CL Phantom High from the Back Butler franchise, Sakura from Zombieland Saga, and Yuna Gosai from Future Diary. So, uh, Steph, why don't you go first? First of all, why the fuck did we bring up Yuna Gosai? <laughs> you know is the and, literal worst! Uh, I, I, I mean, I guess you could argue this character is kind of a yandere, sort of. <laughs> no! She's not a... F- Li- Liuze is not a yandere! Sundere, I can kind of see it! Jen, I can see Sundere. Yandere, fuck no. <laughs> God, wrong. Um, sorry. I hate Future Diary. <laughs> and Yunogasai is a huge reason for it. Yunogasai is a very big reason for it. And I think for everybody else in the world. Um, whoever watched that show. Uh, I'm actually gonna start with... I'm actually gonna start with Louise, actually. Um, uh, cause... Brina's character arc is very interesting as Louise. Louise starts as this vengeful person who's trying to avenge the death of, their, of her sister. Because um, her sister, Liz, I think it was. Or Lisa? Uh, yeah, Lisa, I think. Lisa. Um, she was also a guardian for Luna who, um, who died and succumbed to the ruin after Luna's death. Um, and... and was told to be one of the first to succumb to the ruin. And so Louise is pissed. She wants vengeance against Cashin because she lost her sister and everything. But as her character arc and her progression keeps going on in the series, she goes from wanting revenge against Cashin to following him So because he's shown that he wants to save and defend the world from bad people, to eventually falling in love with him, a.k.a., as Megan describes it, the goddamn fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> that goddamn fever dream where, where Lise is like, oh my yeah. god, I want his dick. Yeah. <laughs> Though because he's a robot, does it also count uh, as a vibrator? I mean... Since Cashern is one, I'm so sorry. I just I love every time I make a sex joke. My boyfriend and Pat Roots in general well, like, oh Megan, god, did you stop? Considering Cashern is one of the three robots created to uh, fucking procreate. <laughs> there the it is. <laughs> filling. <laughs> Not wrong. Um... <laughs> Are you okay over there? Whoever's on another desk, he's slowly dying over there. <laughs> Remember, dying over here. Remember, you opted into this relationship. <laughs> I Mom said it was my this relationship. Mom said it's Mom said it's my turn to use the brain cell. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <All right. laughs> so, God, so, 
Louisa goes from vengeful to following to falling in love. And um, she's definitely one of the more interesting characters to me. Um, and I honestly absolutely love how Brina portrayed Louisa. She's she starts out as vengeful with a gentle soul, gentle soul to her, um, and going through the motions and everything like that with this character, she slowly starts to show her inner conflict as to who her vengeance should actually be directed to. Should it really be directed to Kasher? And then we have what did I write here? Oh, she okay. I was like, "What the fuck did I write?" And then, um, after the halfway point, and especially after "quote unquote" fever dream, Brina definitely softens up a bit more after she realizes her feelings and realizes she has to let go of her desire for this vengeance and to avenge her sister. And it's honestly a really beautiful transition. I think the performance is absolute. My words to describe this performance are absolutely stunning. It's a very beautiful performance seeing this character progression and because unfortunately she and OG they actually don't really make it till the end. They both do succumb to the ruin. Um, Louise probably in probably the more tragic of ways because um, we only get like a cut to OG um, having succumbed but um, it's really really heartbreaking and beautiful and the progression just seems honestly rather natural for the character too um and i absolutely love it uh ringo and og i kind of feel like i have to talk about them together because they nine times out of ten they're always together um monica is sweet and adorable as a little kid she's a little gremlin and i love ringo to death <laughs> um <laughs> she's one of my first notes. Monica is such a precious little bean. Ringo is a precious bean. And she sounds adorable. Um, and as the show goes on, like, there's this thing, there's something to be said about kids. And it was actually brought up at one point. I can't remember which character brought it up. <coughs> I, I, I think it actually was Breaking Boss who said that. I, I think it actually Probably was Nico. Breaking Boss who said that. That sh- children tend to be rather blunt. Uh, yeah. Yep. It was yeah, breaking. Was bo- yeah, it was breaking, boss. Because, um, and it's a thing with kids too, where children don't sugarcoat things, and they just say what's on their mind and how they feel. Ringo is definitely one of those kids that kind of emphasizes it quite a bit, and Monica just portrays that very well. Um, and she's just. So optimistic is like everything's gonna be fine. Cashin didn't did nothing wrong, and she's just sweet and adorable. And as for Jerry Russell, unfortunately, because I'm not familiar with a lot of his work, and and it's sad to say, it's very gonna be very few times that we actually get to talk about him. Unfortunately, um, since he passed away, I think it was I think I saw it was 2013, if I'm correct. It was not long after Wolf Children. I don't think it. it yeah, blah, blah. I don't think it had even premiered he was before he passed. Yeah, he was the. Um, oh yeah, he was yeah, the old yeah, man yeah. Neighbor. Okay, I got it. All right, I can kind of hear it now. But um, 
I kind of call- I, I call Oji the best dad for a fucking reason. He's really cute. He's so sweet to little Ringo. He's so sweet to her. Like, he- He has the kind of almost grumpy old man voice, but at the same time, he's- so endearing and so gentle, especially towards Ringo, because again, nine times out of ten, you see him with Ringo, um, and all he wants is to make Ringo happy and see her happy and safe up until the his very end, um, around the same time as Louise actually, and I was surprised at the twist of like, oh, he's the scientist that created Cash, and like what? That kind of came out of left field on all of this. Uh, I, I mean, like, the show kind of did hint at it in episode one, because you do kind of see Breaking Boss talk to him for, like, five seconds, like, they know each other. I yeah. actually didn't catch that. I mean, the only thing I did catch early on with him was, um, he does tinker and fix things in robots and things like that. I caught that. I didn't know it was an actual reason or a thing behind it, though. I didn't. Ca I forgot the. Ca I forgot the um, conversation with Breaking Boss. Honestly. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is definitely the kind of show where, like, watching it more than once, will you will definitely catch things you didn't notice the first time. Cool. Then it's not me being an idiot. It's just one. Of, it's it's one of those things where you pay attention. Like the more times you watch it, you catch the little things. Hmm, makes sense. Um, but yeah, OG is one of the gruffer voices and has an interesting dynamic and balance with the other three characters, those being Louise, Ringo, and Kasher himself. But, um, I just really enjoy it because he's such a good dad. <laughs> he's, he wants what's best for Ringo. He does what he can for Ringo. And Jerry just, Jerry Russell brings that out very well and phenomenally. And him and, again, him and Louisa, Louise have probably the most tragic of ends. Um, tragic but peaceful ends, I should probably say. Because um, it's not due to violence, it's not due to any illness or anything like that. They just die essentially in, in its own way of natural causes in a peaceful at-home environment. So it's a tragic end for these two characters, but it's also very fitting for the two of them as well. Okay, uh, Roots. Okay, um, yeah, I'll, like, Steph, I'll start with Liuze. Um, I, I do really like that she sort of starts off, she starts off as a really angry character who mellows out over the course of the show, even before the revelations of Luna start to come out. She doesn't want to admit that she's basically starting to forgive Kashern for what he's done, but you, you can tell deep within her heart that she's starting to doubt what she knows and uh, eventually eventually becoming one of his allies and then it, it's kind of implied that she and Kashrin were beginning a relationship yep. when she um, when she passes away to the ruin and I I really like the character arc Luze got because like as one of a handful of characters that actually reprises frequently. Like, I... I knew she was going to get a, a sort of slower burn arc than the one-shots. But I'm I'm glad they filled it with such nuance and vibrancy. And Brina Palencia's performance... 
for this arc is... Like, it, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, she definitely gets the anger through in the beginning of the, um, in the beginning of the show. That sort of mellows out into an almost some dairy performance. And then just flat out kind of in love toward the end. And, like, the final episode also kind of mm. killed me. Because it was, it was really beautiful. And... I'm really glad I get to be on an episode where we talk about Jerry Russell, because for my, for my limited understanding of of stuff, basically toward the um, Dallas acting scene, he is like a really essential person to the theater scene of Dallas, and I don't think Funimation's acting pool would have been nearly as diverse mm. without him. But um, in terms of um, in terms of OG, like I got really great grandpa vibes out of him. Like it, it was wonderful. And also those moments where he's had to um, where he has to chide Cashern for something or another, or Luzé just basically like. He is basically the grandpa to this little family unit. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and um, Monica Rial, like Steph said, she plays she plays Ringo really cutesy, but also like. I, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Um, she plays Ringo like a child. But at the same time, plays her with a bit more of an intelligence yeah. than I expected. I had assumed Ringo was maybe like five or six years old in the course of the show. Like, at at the oldest, maybe even younger than that. So, like, but she, she kind of fun, funny enough becomes sort of the moral backbone of the group. Even though she really, she really shouldn't know as, as much better as she does. But I, uh, like, it doesn't feel out of place either. I I really like that, you know, for every, hey, look, Kesher, I found this shell. There's also moments of, Kesher didn't do anything wrong, or, you know, this isn't your fault, Kesher, get up, you can do this. And I thought that was really beautiful. And, like, Ringo's monologue at the very end of the show with her and Friender with where she's presumably either a teenager or an adult. Where she's I think she's like a, a teenager. Yeah, where she's basically giving the ending monologue as she and Friender are basically waiting for Kashern to come back. Kind of secretly hoping he doesn't because of the nature of why yep. he's not going to be coming back. 
but also knowing that, hey, once, once my generation, the generation that grew up understanding death, be, uh, gets ready to meet their end, he'll come back. And I, I thought that ending monologue was really beautiful. I <laughs> so before I start this, uh, apparently everybody who's at all the voice actors who were at the uh, uh, that con that my hero con in Florida have been stranded there, including Monica, and she just posted this picture of Justin Briner being driven to drink, and I'm like, he has a full beard, and yet he still looks like I need to card him and give him an apple juice. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Please cut that one out. But he he looks he looks so young, and I still love Kristen McGuire. I swear to God, if this one doesn't oh talk about God, the dude. nerd ASC, I'm gonna. Kristen Kristen's face and that is so good. Anyway, back to back to this track. Um, I've I've also been on like one episode where I got to talk about the late Jerry Russell because I was on the Wolf Children episode that we did last year, and I really liked him as OG. He played him as old, but not old like super old man. Uh. I really enjoyed a lot of the anger and anguish that he felt in himself for what he had done. Because you could tell that this was a man who was taking care of Ringo. Uh, not because, because not only did he, I think, genuinely come to care for her, but he, I think he knew that that was Lita's child. Uh, so I think that was probably some regret that he was, he like had to take care of her out of regret and you could hear it in his voice. He was solemn and yet warm, um, just being a like a father figure for Kashern because he was essentially Kashern's father. Uh, it, it's a really well-rounded performance, and it's a shame that we we lost him because I think his voice uh, would be it's greatly missed in a lot of simul dubs that we get today. Um, uh, Monica Real as Ringo, uh, I think, is by far the safest choice in this dub. Monica's known for doing little children. She plays Ringo with this innocence. Uh, and yet, uh, like, worldly knowledge. It's like Breaking Boss said, uh, children can cut through the to the heart of the matter. Kashran did nothing wrong. Hashtag. Um, but she also... She looks like a goddamn fish. Um, she looks like she walked out of Ponyo. I mean, Ringo likes shells! Here. Like, that's basically the character designs of Kashran's sins. It's more like everyone looks like they walked out of an 80s um, anime, which is a uh, kind of interesting uh, given who the character designer for this is. Yeah, uh, the character designer for this is actually Umakoshi, you know, the My Hero Academia character designer. <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. God. What? <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you, Jet. Wow. Um. Anyway, back on track back on track to this. Um, I think Monica plays this a lot, it, but man, Brina Palencia's Lise is some of the best Brina Palencia work that I've heard. Um, I know Brina's probably, I would say, like it, it's like Brina's kind of iconic for playing Holo from Spice and Wolf, but I think this is outright one of her best performances of all time. I think she also gets an insert song that she gets Does to she? sing. I, yeah, I think, think she, she also sing for like a few seconds. I think she gets one in the fever. Yeah, in the fever dream episode, like that one episode that has the, the the photography of the Japanese lady dancing, and I'm like, what the hell is this shit? 
Like, that episode alone, if you ever want to be like, hey, show me the best of Brenda Plenty's work, I'd just be like, watch, like, episode 19 wrong. of Catherine yeah. Twins. Honestly, you won't know I what can, happened, but it's really that. well acted. I can agree with that. But it's really well acted! <laughs> it's... So, I think Brina plays, like, just going from angry to uh, realizing to just motherly towards Ringo to, like, lost, like, a love who's dying. Just, okay, I gotta tell the most Ringo. savage story on Earth now. Um, oh, boy. So, so, I was watching this with my mom <laughs> outside. Like, she was kind of in the room because I was watching it on our nice TV. So she had she had kind of come in around when uh, Lisa Lisa started to her runes started to take over. So she had been dying for like six episodes at this point, and then she died. And I'm like, oh no, Louise died. And my mom goes, "It's about time." What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't like your mom no more. I like and I look mom. at her. I'm like, mom. And she goes, "Oh come on, she's been dying for six episodes." It was her time. It took her too long. So my mom was basically like, oh, thank God that she's been put out of her misery to this. <laughs> thank you, mom. Thank you, mom, <laughs> you savage. Uh, uh, but just Brina knocks it out of the park. It's it's really hard to like, this is one of those performances where like, I can tell you it's really good, but it's never going to do as much justice as just like sitting down and watching her play this character. So yeah, there's that. Okay. Uh, Okay. Oh, I'm done. Go. Um, so I'll start with OG. Uh, honestly, I wasn't like super familiar with Terry Russell outside of his role as Ter- as Tim Marco in FMA Brotherhood. Uh, in fact, it had actually been so long since the last time I rewatched this stuff that I just kind of somehow convinced myself this was an Art Bruce Elliott role until I rewatched it. Uh, but uh, definitely, I really liked this performance. I really liked that he played OG with like a bit of a grandfatherly tone that. That it that doesn't sound too much like a stereotypical grandpa. Just you know, kind of more like, more like the kind of elderly person who just kind of wants to keep to himself and stay out of other people's problems. And I thought that Jerry kind of handled that very well in a lot of the early episodes with OG. And while it's very clear that he like kind of knows more about Castro's history than he lets on, uh, he seems very content to kind of keep that information to himself. And uh, what do we do? We eventually learn what his connection to Catherine is. And uh, Jerry does a very great job of making all of OG's lingering, lingering regrets feel uh, very believable. And, uh, you know, he definitely does give a very clear sense of just how much hope this guy lost after the ruin began. And, and the kind of joy he found in eventually coming to care for Ringo. But speaking of which, just a lot of what made his performance work kind of came down to all of his interactions with uh, Monica Rial as Ringo. And I thought he did a really great job of just bouncing off of her perpetually bubbly personality with, you know, a kind of more cynical outlook while still, you know, kind of having a general softness of a loving parent who wants to do anything to make their child happy. And uh, that definitely ended up being pretty important later on when it kind of seems like Luna's healing is the only way to save Ringo. And uh, while it's kind of hard not to feel, you know, like a little angry with OG for trying to make her, for trying to, uh, you know, get Ringo to be healed against her will, and the desperation of Jerry too kind of came down hard enough that I could still sympathize with him a bit. And uh, definitely my favorite, my favorite moment of his was definitely Uji's uh, final scene in the show where he's just kind of uh, sitting in a workshop doing all sorts of little projects for Ringo and, you know, just coming to realize that their life together could have been so much happier if he just, you know, focused on spending more time with her. 
And uh, I definitely really like really liked that sentiment that it made me, you know, a little sadder when he uh, just ended up dying. And uh, yeah, this was a really solid performance and and while Jerry Russell is no longer with us, it definitely does make me kinda wanna come back over some of his earlier work. And uh moving on to Monica Real is Ringo. Uh yeah, I agree with Megan this was probably the safest casting casting choice here. Uh, she's definitely played a lot of young girls before. And uh, what we get here is uh, pretty much in line with what you would expect with that. Uh, but even so, I still really like the amount of energy Monica brings to this. Uh, she did a great job of making uh, Ringo sound, you know, very bubbly and energetic and, you know, like an actual kid. And uh, while there's maybe one or two points where it felt like Monica was rating herself a little bit, uh, she still managed to maintain the illusion for, you know, the show's entire run, and I definitely appreciated that. And I also just really liked how she bumped, how she bounced off the other characters, like OT, or, uh, you know, how she kind of sees Luzi like a big sister, and, and I thought she just always brought the right amount of pep to just kind of keep everyone from feeling a little too angsty. And uh, as good as she is at portraying a lot of Ringo's positivity, I also really just liked how great she was at making Ringo sound very empathetic, especially that whole bit in episode 14 where she's, you know, kind of consoling Cash and after he finds out the truth about himself. And I really like a lot of their interactions and how she kind of helps to make that Casher and softer side. And I also really liked uh, Ringo's scene with Lena because, again, uh, you know, she's kind of able to cut into the core of what's kind of hurting Lena. And again, you know, she's obviously very clearly Lena's missing child. And which does lead into the question of um, who exactly the baby daddy there is. Uh, because while I did just kind of assume it was Dio the first couple of times I watched this show, uh, just looking at how some of the other characters talked about it and how Lena's one and only direct confrontation with Kasher kind of played out, it kind of made me wonder if maybe he was a father, which would have been uh, very interesting, to say the least. But, uh, yeah. And then I think he might have been. would be all vengeful and shit towards Kasher. Oh my god! <laughs> oh jeez. Like, what? think about it. Motivation-wise for Lita. Like, she doesn't want anything to do with Cashin because basically, like, maybe maybe um he he did her dirty or some shit, and now he's she's just like, I'm just gonna go to Dio. I love Dio. Oh fuck. <laughs> love triangles. Uh, fuck. Always fun watching the little light bulb fuck. pop up on his head. Yeah. And uh, lastly, get into, getting into Brita Palencia as Luze. Uh, this one was particularly interesting for me because, again, uh, like with what, some of the one-off characters, and this was my first time ever really hearing her with anything, and it definitely shaped, helped to shape my opinion of her as an actress. Uh, so at the start of the show, Luze is kind of, you know, very driven by her eggs, by her, you know, eggs towards Casher and, and, you know, wanting her vengeance. And while a lot of her anger maybe feels a little one-note at times, I thought Brita did a very good job of making all that hatred feel very real. Uh, but at the same time, her voice kind of, you know, carries across how conflicted she feels about the whole thing. And it kind of feels like she's, you know, just lashing out against Catcher because she doesn't know what to do with herself now that her sister's gone. Uh, you know, rather than it just being her life's purpose to get revenge. And those feelings kind of come into full effect when Liu, they decide to start traveling with Kasherin. And, you know, as the two of them kind of spend more time together, Brita's voice kind of slowly starts to soften up a bit, and Liu becomes a little bit lighter and more expressive. And I think definitely shifts even more when Liu kind of finds herself conflicting between, 
you know, uh, Kasher being the man she should hate versus, versus, you know, falling in love with the man he is now. And I felt that Brita definitely got across that inner turmoil very well in that particular episode. Uh, but uh, even when Liuzze kind of comes to terms with those feelings, she finds herself in an even bigger conflict as, you know, as she kind of finds herself actually fearing her impending death for the first time. And I thought that Brita's delivery during that whole scene where her and Kasher are in a raid and she kind of uh, confesses all of her feelings towards Kasher and only for him to tell her that she, that he's actually about as scared as she is about dying and I thought that was just a really beautiful scene. And uh, while all of those fears kind of stay with Blue up through her rejection of Blue and Salvation and her, you know, just kind of eventually coming to terms with her death and deciding to just live out the rest of her life to the fullest. And uh, it all kind of leads into her final scene with Kasher where she kind of dies happily knowing that she lived the best she could. And I thought that Brita's just, Brita's gentle delivery in that moment just, you know, combined with how much that character transitioned from, you know, being very angsty to very gentle, it, it was just a really beautiful mode, and I felt that Liuzzi was just probably the heart of the story. And, uh, it was just definitely a character arc with a big rollercoaster of emotions, and I thought that Brita portrayed all of that very beautifully. And honestly, this was definitely my favorite performance of the whole dub, and, uh, honestly, hearing this one is what helped to make Brita into one of my favorite voice actors, period, and, uh, this definitely holds up as some of her best work. It was really good. And uh, with that, we're good to move into our final characters of the evening. Uh, we have yay, and, uh, and we have Luda mm -hmm. and the titular Kasher. Uh, Luda is a robot who possesses the power of healing, and uh, her abilities cause her to be targeted by breaking boss. And and uh, supposedly, her being killed by Kasher is what kickstarts his ruin. Uh, it's also worth noting that in the original Neo-Human Kasher, she was apparently Kasher's sidekick in fighting Breaking Boss, so, uh... Really? Well, that one sink in, I guess. Yeah. Huh. Luna's also a bitch! Yeah. Luna's, <laughs> Luna's the worst. <laughs> Luna is actually the worst! Yeah, and, uh, as for Kasher, he is a mysterious and highly advanced robot with no memory of who he is, other than that he's responsible for Luna's death. And so he goes on a very long journey to find her and get answers. Uh, so for Luna, we have Trina Nishimura, and for Kashin, we have one Eric Vale. And Trina Nishimura has played such characters as Gina from Garo Vanishing Line, Karisa Makase from Sidesgate, Sally from Black Clover, and Mikasa Ackerman from Attack on Titan. And Eric Vale, you may know for such roles as Sakio from Yu Yu Hakusho, uh, Dryden Fasa from the Funimation Redub of The Visit of Escaflote, Nishiki Nishio from the Tokyo Ghoul franchise, and again, because it's kind of topical, Yuki Soba from both versions of Fruit Basket. Here we are, full circle, boys and girls. <laughs> okay, uh, Fruits, why don't you start us off? Uh, sure. So, um, I, I guess I'll start off with Luna, because, um, save my thoughts for catching for last. Um, I liked it. I liked it that, um, you know, in the early episodes and flashbacks before her assassination, um, Trina played Luna with a bit of a gentle, calm, and uh, and reassuring tone. And then after she's found, when um, when it's revealed she's still alive, she then turns around and uses that to basically. I, I don't want to, uh, 
I don't want this to sound like I'm trashing the performance in any way, but, like, slap the viewer in the face for thinking that, you know, this was gonna be a happy-go-lucky moment. Because she... She flips a bitch switch on. <sighs> it's a bitch. Like, bitch, 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 bitch. Like, holy shit. When she... When she treats Dune like garbage. Because he, he reeks of death. Like, oof. And um, one thing about her performance I, I really especially like is the final episode. When uh, she's made the contract with Breaking Boss. And she's she's healing the, the ruined... But she is just absolutely miserable the entire time because she smells the ruin on all of these people and it absolutely terrifies her. And she she realizes the Faustian end of the deal she's made. And it's like... I love scenes like that. Where somebody makes a deal with the bad guy and then realizes, oh, whoops, that probably wasn't a good idea now, was it? Are we the baddies? And, um, Eric Vale as Cashern. I... I really like how... Like, especially in, like, the ten-second Sizzler opening to every episode where it's just a flashback to the assassination of Luna broken up into, like, little itty-bitty pieces. Like, I thought those were really well done. Even though, largely, they were just Eric Vale screaming into a microphone. <laughs> or uttering some... Uh, some... different... version Luna. of, I will kill you, Luna. <laughs> but I, I thought they were... Like... Something for the show itself. I love the fact that they kind of... It didn't feel sequential at all, and I really like that. Excuse me, and I don't, I don't know if you can even piece those little bits together to form a coherent scene. Uh, yeah, that would be kind of hard. But um, like I, and then in the show itself, where in the the first half he's basically this stoic, quiet warrior who is trying to figure out why he's fighting in the first place. And then slowly becoming a warm, gentle personality. And then in the final episode, actually show real human emotion. And it's... I... I like with Liuze, I love Kasher's character arc through the show. And, um... I... Yeah... Sorry, I am I'm really tired and thoughts and brain trying to create words. Not so uh, good. Yeah. But yeah, I I really like them both. Uh, yeah, it's okay, I know I know it's gonna kinda wait. Uh Megan, go. Uh yeah, no. I fuck Luna. <laughs> the other really, really awkward thing is that uh one of my cats is named Luna. <laughs> and she jumped up on the couch. She jumped up on the couch towards the last episode and demanded that my mom pet her. 
And my mom looked at the screen, looked at it, and goes, so did you name the cat after her? And I said, no, I've never watched this show until this weekend. Um, fun fact, my cat is not named after Sailor Moon, she's named after Moon Phase. Um, because Hazuki's other personality was named Luna, so. Uh, but... There were times where I was like, why Trina for this character? Like, I didn't really like it at first, but once, you know, Luna actually became a character, um, an awful little gremlin character who I... Fuck this child. In the words, fuck them, kid. Fuck that kid. Um, like, I I enjoyed that Luna got the, the fear of God put into her by Catherine, like, she deserved it. Luna deserved everything she got. Fuck this character. Um, Trina does a really good job playing her as this otherworldly little tyrant. Because that's what Luna is. She's a tyrant over life. She she literally is throwing people who are still alive to their deaths because she thinks they're disgusting. Fuck her. And Trina plays her with this, like, Naivete, like naivete and fear, but also being full of herself, and it's really interesting. I don't think it works every time, but I think it does get across the character arc really well. And Eric Vale's Cashurns at times sounded like a really depressed Phoenix Wright. I can't unhear Phoenix Wright from him because basically Phoenix Wright sounds like Eric Vale to me. Um, but I, I, I really do like. Eric's performance, especially against Kiyosama, I mean Dio. Um, thank you for thank you for that. Um, I think this is probably one of Eric Vale's like more underrated performance. Eric Vale does a lot of really good performances. I think he's doing one of his best performances in a long time right now in the current adaptation of Fruits Basket. Um, he gets to do a lot. He gets to play an amnesiac. He gets to play a depressed man. He has to go batshit. He has such, probably one of the deepest character arcs I've seen in an anime in a long time, and he plays it with aplomb, and he comes into it. Uh, he comes into his own, and he's fantastic to listen to. So, um, again, this is another—it's another weird thing where it's like I need you to watch the show to understand because it's really hard to explain Kashrin as a character without actually watching the show and giving, without watching the show because this is not a show that you can just like, go down and sit and explain to somebody. This isn't like. This isn't something like uh, My Hero where it's like, this is why it works. Because it's presented to you in such a straightforward way. Whereas this is a very artistic show that takes a lot of liberties. And here's the other thing. A lot of really good character moments in this show are not done through dialogue, but through grunting uh, foley noises, which are done really well across the whole board, mm -hmm. and through silence and editing. So I think Eric did a fantastic job as a leading man in this and I can't give him anything but praise. I guess that means it's me, right? Uh, I'm gonna start with Trina, cause um, for the first half of the show, it was kinda hard for me to judge Luna as a character, as a performance because we only saw her in those brief little flashback moments at the beginning of the episodes. Um, when Luna finally became an integral character in the second half of the show, though, Trina's portrayal of her was just... What was the words I described for it? It's just so haunting and beautiful. It's 
Luna is a very interesting and enigmatic kind of character. She's she's this enigma where she's seen as this godlike character being able to give life to these robots and keep them from dying away from the ruin. But at the same time as the more you watch the spe- the second half of the sh- of the show, you learn that Luna's actual reasoning and motivations have shifted compared to supposedly the first iteration of her of her and her character where she just wants to do away with death whether it's giving people the chance to be immortal or or just leaving them to die she wants nothing to do with death she wants death to be eradicated and she doesn't care if it's one way or the other how the how it works and there's something about trina's portrayal of it that's just so haunting and beautiful in the tone of voice um and giving it almost a godlike enigma mysterious kind of presence to it and i honestly really enjoy the that aspect of luna as a character luna's a bitch either way but the performance is just honestly just hauntingly beautiful and i think it's really fantastic um, that Trina was able to portray that rather well. Um, Eric Vale has the most complex character arc in the show, bar none. Because he... Megan basically kind of described him to a T. He's an amnesiac. He's seen as a killing machine. He's... Has this... Fuck. He has this inner turmoil that he goes through throughout the course of the show, going from not knowing who he is to wanting to understand what he's done to seeing and these interactions and this journey he's been on and meeting these different people and these different robots and learning from them wanting to protect them wanting to um change um change everything see luna and try and see if he can help fix what he broke in the first place um and then the end result for him being, I'm just going to be this bringer of death like everybody says I am. I'm this calamity that everybody says I am. Uh, there's something... There's something in its own way kind of sad and tragic um, to Kashrin as a character, especially in the end, that he decided to self-insert himself into this role that... For the longest time, everybody was giving to him and he didn't want to accept it. But for the sake of everybody else, he decided at the end of the day to accept that role of being a reaper of death, essentially. And this calamity that everybody doesn't want or see. So it's a very interesting progression. And it's it uh, while the irony and the humor is there when Jet brought up Yuki Soma... This is one of the more quieter roles, similar to Yuki Soma. Um, it's in that similar range, except, and I'm using the 2001 anime as the comparison, not the new 2019 version. This, mm-hmm. with, with the Yuki Soma from 2001, this tone that he uses for Kashern is the quieter version, similar to Yuki Soma, but it's more in his range. With 2001 version Yuki Soma. It's quiet, but it all you can also tell it might have pushed a, t- a little bit 
to a certain degree. Um, but with this version, it's much more natural sounding and much more quieter and a gentler tone. Um, and I really honestly appreciate that a lot. But seeing the struggle, seeing the struggle that Cashin goes through and seeing Eric portray that from start to finish, including all of the, oh my God, can we just again, quickly talk about the, the pain that he goes through? Like, the visceral, like, screams of, like, Oof. agony and pain. Cashern's no, Cashern's no good fucked up long, <laughs> long <laughs> No, but, like, because one of the big things is Cashern is seen as this immortal thing, or, or being. And, like, when he gets injured, he heals himself, but it causes him so much pain to do so. And it's not by choice either. It just happens. And hearing those like screams of agony every single time, it just is so visceral. And it's like, holy shit. You just feel that pain too. So this is... I agree with Megan. This is one of the more underrated Eric Vale performances. Um, it You can see it fly completely under the radar. And it's just... It's just downright amazing and a fantastic performance and, and I love it so much. Eric Vale may be known for some of the loud obnoxious kind of characters sometimes but it's performances like these that also remind myself as well as probably everybody else here Eric Vale is a fantastic actor and it's, and it's roles and characters like these that honestly I love seeing portrayed from actors. Um, yeah. This is a fantastic performance. Okay. Um, as for me, uh, sorry, with Luna. As I can't quite recall, this was my first time ever hearing True Daddy Super or anything, but um, this was probably the role that did my that didn't emancipate my opinion of her as an actor till because I came around. Uh, so Luna is a figure wrapped in mystery for much of this show. And while she doesn't do too much aside from maybe a line or two of the flashbacks for like most of the first half, uh, Trina's voice kind of carries across a sense of mystery really well, and you know, kind of an eerie call to make Luna sound like the savior she's supposed to be. But at the same time, there's also something a little unsettling about it. And as it turns out, that was probably intentional because when we do come face to face with her, she's definitely not all she was cracked up to be. And uh, we learned that she's, you know, only offering healing to those who ask for her salvation while leaving anyone who's on death's door to, you know, kind of rot and suffer. Uh, it's simply very twisted. You could kind of dissect the symbolism of that all day, but we don't really have time for that. And uh, Trina's toe during that whole revelation kind of, you know, managed to completely sell how much Luna buys into her whole philosophy. And uh, it's simply not hard to see why Catherine and Co. kind of get fed up with her very quickly. Uh, but as twisted as she is, you definitely do get the sense that her, that in her own way, her desire to, you know, kind of give everyone eternal life is her own kind of atonement for having granted humans the gift of death in the past. And uh, Trina kind of, you know, managed to get across as he's still kind of a little traumatized by that. Uh, never enough for, never enough for me to actually like the character, but it's very clear we aren't supposed to like the character, so that works out pretty well. Uh, definitely a little bit of a change in the Brigands of the series comeuppance for kind of leaving Doom to die after he was so loyal to her. Uh, but she did kind of need to survive in order for the ending to work, so, you know, eh, I get why, even if it's a little frustrating. Uh, but anyway, I 
uh, tangent aside, I thought Trina did a really great job here, and uh, the performance at that point helped to make her into one of my favorite Federation actresses, so good job. And uh, as for Eric Vale as Casher, uh, so Eric Vale is probably my favorite actor for Federation Talent Pool, and I definitely always enjoyed how versatile his performances could be. Uh, in this case, though, it's definitely very interesting uh, going across what he did here compared to Kasher's Japanese actor, uh, Toyu Furia. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know who Toyu Furia is, uh, he's been around since the 80s. Uh, weirdly, he did not play the original Kasher, it was some, it was someone else. Uh, but he has played such characters as, like, Seiya from the Saint Seiya franchise, and he was the original Tuxedo Mask from Sailor Moon. Uh, so, needless to say, that man had, like, a very distinct voice, and his Kasher had, like, a very 80s flair to it that kind of made Sasher. Uh, he still sounded very sad, but he sounded a little bit more like a superhero, and he had kind of a more, a little bit more of a robotic sound to his voice that kind of, you know, matched Kasher's general lack of emotion at the beginning of the show. Uh, but, uh, compared to that, Eric's veil sounds a lot more emotional at the beginning, and his Kasher sounds, you know, a lot more vulnerable and confused. And, you know, while diverging so much with the tone of the Japanese performance could have led to Eric's performance sounding, you know, a little out of character, it so matches Kasher's character arc very well to the way I kind of prefer his take. Uh, seeing that vulnerability definitely makes it a little bit easier to sympathize with kind of to, you know, sympathize with Cash a little more, even when he gets a little overly angsty at times. And, uh, and it's definitely very interesting seeing all that vulnerability and angst kind of turn into resolution as the show progresses. And uh, when Cash does kind of get to the point where he decides to dedicate himself to protecting other people, uh, Eric definitely manages to make that transformation feel very natural and rewarding. Uh, but definitely a lot of Eric's best moments are just him playing off of other characters. You know, whether it's a lot of the one-off characters that kind of help Caster to grow on his journey, or, you know, and, or, you know, just kind of, uh, and, you know, you see the reserved nature of his acting kind of breathing life into some of those characters, and that, that was really cool. Uh, in terms of a lot of solo moments, though, and nothing, nothing quite hits as hard as his delivery, you know, during the show's final episode, where he... Uh, where he comes face to face with Luna after he comes back, and uh, and you know he kind of lays out a series of how he'll allow Luna to continue her quote unquote salvation, uh, but you know that if any of her people ever forget death, he'll definitely come back, and uh, it's very chilling, but it definitely kind of helped to drive home the show's core theme. And Eric did a very great job of selling you know the mix of anger and resolution that that whole scene required. And uh, even though I was definitely very attached to Toyu Furuya's original performance, uh, I thought Eric did a very commendable job here, and he ma definitely made this character his own. And uh, while I know this wouldn't rate very highly on most people's lists of uh, Eric Vale's best performances, this is definitely one of my favorites of his. It's, it's really good. And uh, with that, I guess we're good to move into final thoughts. So, Megan, uh, would you like to start us off? Uh, sure. This is a show that I... I'm glad I watched it once. Um, it was a lot of fun to, to, to watch and to listen to. I think a lot of the performance are standouts for some people's careers. The ensemble is incredibly strong. Um, I know that this show gets called the most depressing apocalypse show, or sad robot apocalypse, depressing robot apocalypse. Um, I actually did... Sorry, something fell. 
This is not the hardest show I've ever had to watch. March comes in like a lie and still goes down as the most depressing thing I've ever watched in the show. Um, but this was very, very somber, but I really appreciated the beauty and the artistry in it. Like, even beyond uh, the dubbing, just the artwork, the, the style, the artwork, the story, um, the... It's a it's a rather more experimental oh, yeah, oh, anime. Um, oh. Also a sh also a huge shout out to the woman who wrote this show. Um, uh, I, I can't remember Yasuke her name. Kobayashi. Yeah, uh, a huge shout out to this to this to this woman who has ha who has a magical ability to take uh, pre established franchises and make them into incredibly well done dark fantasies. You will know uh, two of her other prominent works that she's done. Gara the oh, animation yeah. in Doro. Yeah. Checks out. Uh, so, yeah, this lady, so I really, I really enjoyed it. This is definitely worth a watch, especially the dub at least once. And yeah, that's my final hey, thoughts. Hey, uh, Steph. Um, this show is very, very underrated. It's, I'm, honestly really glad we're talking about it because I know for Jed it's one of his favorite dubs ever um, and I can absolutely see why he would make that claim to everybody um, this this honestly is a really really good show it's very complex and it has its philosophical moments again for like what it means to live and die and a bunch of different things and it just seems such a surreal depiction of this dystopian world and it falling to ruin but there's always just this little light of hope um, shining in the darkness and it's it is very somber and can be depressing sometimes but um it's a very very fantastic show and so underrated same with the dub itself this dub for an early 2010s dub or so is also f underrated and fantastic despite some of the minor issues I may have had with like some of the double castings and things like that but it's the directing and the writing understood the tone of the show they understood what the series was going for and they understood that it needed to keep the main themes of the show all the while making this world just as Ringo would probably say it just sparkle and just give it this beauty and this life to it um, in such a depressing world and these perform the performances in the cast and everything is just so visceral and at sometimes very raw sounding to me and it's honestly a really really fantastic series and a fantastic dub it's definitely one that you should watch at some point in time um and jet thank you for finally getting my ass to watch this goddamn show because it's been on my shelf for ages so uh definitely definitely go watch this when you have a chance yeah so um this is why you let tokusatsu writers yep. do anime Like, this this show has all of the... 
this show has what makes Tokusatsu great, combined with a lot of aspects of what makes anime in general really pop as an art format. Um, it's a great character study. It's very well animated. There are scenes of CG, but you barely notice them. Like, the character designs are absolutely gorgeous, and, like, the backdrops are very beautifully oh, painted. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about the art design for this show, but, like, the art design for it's this show is so amazing. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it is just one lovely shift. Here. Yeah, like... Chef's yeah, like this kiss. is yeah, like this is definitely the kind of thing where this is definitely why you buy anime on Blu-ray. This this shit looks amazing. Like even then, I have mm-hmm. the DVD save edition. It still looks gorgeous. And um, like I said, it's it is a great character study. It's a great reboot of a really fun show. Um, that said, do not watch <laughs> no. this as your first anime. <laughs> Don't watch it as your give, second Give it, anime. like, maybe like, don't. five to ten range, maybe. Like, this is not Monogatari Deep End, but do do dip your toes in into anime for a while before you check it out. But do check it out. Um, this, this would probably be in my top 20 anime of all time. Probably. And um, the dub is absolutely spectacular, so... Either way you want to watch it, it is a great experience and to end. Okay, um, as for me, uh, so I have a pretty long history with this show, and uh, it means quite a lot to me, honestly. It was definitely one of the first shows that kind of allowed me to appreciate what anime can be capable of as an art form, you know, instead of just pure entertainment. And a lot of what it has to say regarding death and the importance of, you know, just living each day to the fullest. Uh, that really stuck with me over the years. Uh, it's not a perfect show, and it can be a little melodramatic at times, but there's definitely a lot of moments where it can be really beautiful and touching. And moments of just, they've never really failed to pull on my heartstrings. Uh, it's definitely not a series that I would recommend to everyone, and it does require a lot of patience to get everything it's going for. Uh, but it's definitely something I've gotten more out of uh, the more and more times I revisit it. And uh, it's definitely remained as one of my favorite anime, like, period. Like, I don't talk too much about, like, my actual favorite anime of all time, but this actually sits at number three for me. So, Oh, wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, and uh, as for the dub, uh, I'm glad to say that it holds up, you know, just as bad as well the show does for me. Uh, there's a great mix of really cool casting choices and really stellar performances, both from folks who were established at the time to uh, folks who have, you know, since come on to become really big names in their own right. And again, this isn't a show I'd recommend to everyone, uh, even in spite of how much I love it, but if you are interested in checking it out, it has a really great dub. And uh, since very surprisingly few of my anime have really good dubs that I'm, you know, 100% on board with, I'm glad that this one has really stood the test of time. And, uh, and with that, uh, we're more or less done here, so if you would like to see Casher and Sins, you can... Uh, in addition to, you know, being able to buy it on home video, it is currently streaming on Funimation Now. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to subscribe to Funimation Now, they have a two-week free trial, but, uh, do be, uh, but do be aware if you, uh, don't cancel before the trial ends, you will be charged. It's, like, at seven ninety-five a month, I think, now. Something I believe like that. it is, yes. Yeah. 
I think so. And um, if you are interested in checking out the original Neo Human Cashern, it, it, that one is actually currently streaming on High Dive just under the name Cashern. Well, Cashon with an A instead of an E for some reason. Uh, but uh, yeah, that one's on High Dive. And uh, I don't know if that was available for free or not, so uh, yeah. And uh, before we go for tonight, uh, does anyone have anything they want to plug real quick? Um, sure. You can um, you can find me on Twitter at Roots of Justice, mainly retweet, uh, retweet cute animal pics, um, talk general fandom stuff, good time. Um, I am currently in the process of scripting one and planning another secret Patreon project for Dub Talk. So stay tuned for those and be excited. Get excited like Senku does for science. Anyway, my name is Megan. You can follow me at QueenEra2 on Twitter. I shitpost. Also, B, uh, I think we have some names well, to hold read on. for her. If you want, I can do it. I'll pull it up in like two seconds. Um, while I'm doing so, uh, my name is Stephanie. You can follow me on Twitter at Lilac Anime Review with review being spelled R E V U E. And uh, I also have a blog that I update rather <laughs> infrequently. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, life and times otaku.wordpress.com. Okay, um, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at DivineNega or at Jet Zero Infinity, where I will, uh, you know, uh, usually talk about anime and video games or cartoons or what have you. Uh, you can also find me on our blog, Animation Infinity, where I sometimes do anime reviews. This season, I'm doing reviews for Astro Locks in Space. And uh, you can also occasionally find me on Podcast ONA with um, Andrew, uh, Alex, and Duelist. And um, before we go, just want to, you know, give some shout out to our Patreon people, uh, if you would, Steph. If you want to follow us here on Dub Talk, you can, the easiest and best way to do so is subscribing to us on YouTube, um, of course, where we uh, upload video, uh, episodes once or twice a week depending on what's going on uh, we also have various social medias you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr is dead uh, and Twitch all at Dubtug Podcast and if you really really like us and you want to support us here uh, we do have two ways of doing so. One is for one-time donations. We have a coffee account. Uh, the link for that will be in the description below. We also have if extremely extremely wanted to support us we also have our patreon um that you can donate like a dollar two dollars five or ten depending on what you want to do and speaking of our wonderful patreon shout outs as jet was talking about uh special shout outs to uh, michelle travis nico robin with yaoi hands brad mitchell jared carly lestikow marissa lenti and weeby uh you are all such awesome awesome peoples uh, thank you so much for all of you. Steph your is the only person who can read a certain person. Yep, I can Patreon fucking do it. This is the second time in two days I've been able to do it perfectly without breaking character <laughs> or anything. Like that. Hell yeah. Wow. Nice job. And uh, with that, we are basically done. So uh, thanks for sticking with me, guys. I know this one went on for really, really long. It's all right. We're okay. And now <laughs> it's no, time no, for no, cake. <laughs> Um, so, uh, okay, so to everyone, have a good <laughs> night, and until next time, we'll talk a lot, my friends. Good night, everybody.
Good night, everybody, and happy birthday, Jet, you motherfucker! Have a good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Happy birthday, Happy birthday, Jet. Jet, and remember, kids, and remember, kids, whatever you say, don't accept the blood of a lolly. <laughs>